Welcome to the podcast. It's the worst territory in the world. Personalities, history, and other stories. We know you're craving for more knowledge. Let the champions get their glory. It's the worst territory in the world. What's up, everybody? It is that time of the week. It is possibly the best time to talk about perhaps the worst territory in the world. I'm Gabe sitting here with Chris. Chris, boy, oh boy, here we go. It is hotter than hell outside, and we are going to record a hotter podcast this week. How, how's your week been so far? Oh, it's been pretty good. Like you said, it, it is like unbearable. Yeah, well, and I know everybody's awful. talking about how the, the ocean is like the hottest it's ever been in recorded history and you know, I've had to listen to a lot of climate change debate in the last few days, so uh, I'd, I'd like to turn it off of that because, you know, uh, whatever side you're on on that, like, no one's doing anything really for it either way, so it doesn't really matter. I don't know how to change the world that way. But anyway, Gabe, uh, on to uh, less serious topics. Um, I got into, like, a long discussion this week, and I get this discussion all the time with people about why wrestling you know, in a, in a large form sucks today than it did like, you know, 20 to 30, 40, 50 years ago. And, you know, there's like a ton of contributing factors and it's always fun to sort of throw that against the wall. Have you ever played that game? Um, Literally every day in my mind uh, or every time <laughs> or every time I watch a wrestling uh, show and you know, I want to be the guy that's like, well, you know, I don't understand a lot of what's going on, but you know, there's a there's a lid for every pot, so to speak. But yes, I I've played that game quite frequently. Well, this isn't even a knock on um, acrobatic spot fest versus storytelling. It's not even even that. That's sort of the that to me is the end uh, situation of like how we got there is the the reason what I'm talking, not why that happens. You know. Yeah, you can debate all the time. Well, I hate uh, moves don't mean anything, blah, blah, blah. But to me, it's it's deeper than that. You know, of course, like, and usually I talk with my buddy Seth about this. Seth Mates, former writer at WWE with me as well. Um, you know, we always discuss, like, for example, obviously, political correctness. Political correctness has completely screwed pro wrestling. And uh, so we discussed that for a while. And then I, the internet has screwed. You can't go around the horn. And I talk about this with our uh, with our interview subject, Pete Madden, today. You know, you can't take a match around the horn anymore. That's how that stuff used to be awesome back in the day. And it is, you know, I always said the internet has ruined wrestling more than almost anything else ever. Agreed. Um, you know, Agreed. It, it's up there. It's uh, it's top ten in, like, things that the internet have ruined. But uh, outside of, you know, just common decency and like people social just, discourse uh yeah, politeness people, yeah exactly <laughs> me wanting to know every thought that you have every second stuff like that i don't care but you know i the uh yeah the, just larger topics like that that's sort of like regardless of if again if you like high spot matches you know or long-term storyline it, it really doesn't matter because even when i was on the writing team gabe back in the early 2000s man you could not do much you know it's sort of like when i was booking uh metro pro the only real longtime storyline thing that that really worked well was uh, sort of the power gimmick, you know, like the evil, yeah. powerful person taking on, you know, pushing down the, the top baby face and keeping them down. Now, that's a tried and true. It's gone on forever. But, you know, gone are the days where there's any kind of, um, 
you know, guy girl fighting going on as far as like, you know, I always say like with the mega powers thing, get to, would that even get to be on TV now? No. You know, with the sort of, I, I don't think so. I, I think they would say that they're treating Miss Elizabeth like a piece of meat and it's like unchivalrous and, you know, just not good, dis- discriminatory in some way. And then, you know, also, um, you know, the, the race angle, which has always been well, race slash nationality, which has always been something, you know, I was just talking about Seth. Seth was very, uh, my buddy Seth was very um, upset when they did Muhammad Hassan because he actually had a personal friend die in 9-11 in the towers. And so, of course, like, obviously it hits home. He hated that. And I totally understand that. But, uh, you know, gosh, you go 20 years, 20 years, 30 years before that. And that stuff would have been, you know, used for the biggest heel, you know. And so um, I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. I'm not even arguing that we should do that. <laughs> but I am saying that that has changed and it's made wrestling less of a less of a thing that you can really use topical things with or stuff that people have to have a long term. You know, I always like to tell people when they get mad at somebody, if it's the first chapter of a long term storyline and they're upset about, you know, in today's standards of sensitivity, I'm like, you have to let this play out because the good guy always, always wins. wins. So always. like you have to let the bad guy get the upper hand. It's every movie, every television show. That's what happens. But nowadays you can't do that. So I feel like that has led to, well, you know what? We can't do anything cool like that. So let's just have uh, yeah, you do like 50 super kicks and a bunch of planches and then you finish it with like four Canadian destroyers and then we go home. You know what I mean? Just, <laughs> that's Canadian. where it goes now. <laughs> four Canadian destroyers in a row. I mean, to to your point about the 9-11 or the, uh, that, that gimmick, wasn't the Iron Sheik waving in the 80s a flag with the Ayatollah on it? Now, again, sure. didn't commit the atrocities per se on our soil that 9-11 did, but it was definitely you know, us, you know, the, the old trope was even people from Canada, when they're wrestling American wrestlers, quote unquote, you know, USA, US, you know what I mean? It's, it's a tale as old as time. Now, those types of things can't be utilized anymore. So you do lose a lot of that. My brother personally blames anime culture <laughs> that, you know, like anime, uh, culture has basically seeped into the world of pro wrestling and and that has uh you know uh helped in ruining the sport that w- we all loved uh, like so why in what way like I, i'm not an anime guy so i know it's a japanese form of cartoon type thing like why does that have anything to do with I, I i think uh, because it, i don't know i think because it's such a niche like thing it's like when you like anime you're like you're one of those people, you know what I mean? No offense to anybody. Well, no, nah, I don't care. Anime is weird, especially if you, I, 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 I akin it to this, right? The people that are really into Disneyland, Chris, that are our age. Yes. You're weird. <laughs> now you're I've weird. been there a couple times with my, my kids. Sure. Sure. But I mean, if you're like the guy that's like, like you're part of the Mickey Mouse club and you're 40 and you're like, you're you're one of those guys that like has to go to Disney or guys or gals that has to go to Disneyland all the time. I think that's weird. And I think it's the same thing with anime. If you watch a lot of anime and you're my age, I don't know. I I get being into niche things. I mean, we're into we're into pro wrestling. I like playing video games once in a while. But I think what he means is it's like this culture of like almost like the basement dweller has has like pushed out to the surface and they're like grabbing things in pro wrestling that they like and you know, just trying to make it their own like weird little like subset. And, uh, 
But I, I mean, I would think internet, it's the internet as a whole that has really ruined well, wrestling. I mean, you man, can't watch yeah. a gimmick on Friday night, you know, like Shotzi and uh, let's take Shotzi and uh, who's she feeding with right now, Bailey. And, and then all of a sudden they're saying hi to each other on Instagram or like girl thumbs up, you know, it's, it's it just kind of ruins the mystique. We all know that the, the cat is out of the bag, but at least try to with like, keep some sort of semblance of a storyline going, even if it's on social media, you know? I, so I think that's kind of ruined. Things. Yeah. That's, that's ruined the kayfabe aspect of it more than, you know, even just Vince, uh, you know, of course, even, even when Vince did it, you know, in the nineties, it wasn't exactly something that killed kayfabe necessarily people. I still feel like if, if we, it just wasn't pushed down our throats so much that kayfabe to a degree, not even kayfabe, but just like the, the amount of time that people will, uh, you know, suspend disbelief would go up if you just allowed them to be that way as opposed to just right. every corner hitting him in the face with like you know this is like not real right we're all friends <laughs> i mean if you didn't do that all the time right. it probably wouldn't be as bad but you know you can get so deep in why wrestling isn't the same way it was anymore the globalization of just society you know i mean like Back in the day, I mean, you know, obviously 20 or 30 years ago, people were still sneak attacking somebody and calling it, we really Pearl Harbor them. And, yeah, you know, I'm sure like in right? the, if your if your family died in Pearl Harbor, someone died in that attack, then you're going to think that's incredibly insensitive and horrible. And I can understand that. But, you know, before the Internet, uh, people didn't have the, you know, the, the sort of outlook on like, now we have sympathy of every culture. Now we understand culture more. We're not just completely propagandized by either our, our television or our, uh, television news or our mainstream magazines or newspapers or whatever. Now we see it every day and we're a smaller place. And these things are a lot closer to home than they used to be. And it's a lot harder to sometimes like villainize like an entire country or segment of the population than it was like 30, 40, 50 years ago. So, I mean, there's so many things that have changed. And like, like I said, like when we were trying to spitball storylines back in the early two thousands, I mean, there just wasn't a lot we could do. I remember D'Lo Brown came to me and pitched this angle where he was with Teddy Long. And that's, by the way, that is when I was there, we brought Teddy Long out of retirement to be D'Lo's manager. And that lasted like five seconds. And then Teddy Long stayed around for the next like 20 years, you know, whatever, right. the 10, <laughs> 10 to 15 years or whatever after that. But he wanted D'Lo pitch this angle where he was sort of a militant black guy. And obviously he had been in Nation of Domination. So it was sort of out of that. And his Nick and his sort of catchphrase was, are you down with the Brown? And it was, uh, you know, and even at that point, you know, I, I think some of my co-writers when i was sort of saying like hey you know delo's pitching this you know we could do this or that and they were still sort of like raising their eyebrows like is this something you really want to go to and it's like i mean in today's world probably not you know i mean like delo's for it so you know i'm not i'm pushing it for him not really something i think came up with but um you know even at that point we're talking 2002 you know you're like um you know, I don't know if we want to go down that angle. And of course, since then they did Muhammad Hassan and they did other stuff like that, but it went over like a freaking lead balloon because nobody uh, supported it because, you know, it was looked at as incredibly insensitive. And I'm not saying it's not, I'm just saying, uh, and you know, another thing, <laughs> the, the, there's so many things, um, UFC, the, the, the MMA world had so much play in the wrestling world that Absolutely. of course that's a good point in the late in the 90s people started shaving their heads tattooing up and calling their real names and like their gimmick was their tough badasses that was like everybody you know what i mean like 
I mean, I know, uh, you know, Batista came out as the Deacon with Devon and like, um, you know, Cena and, and Brock and all these people, they all had similar things. They were just like jacked sort of shaved heads, real name, Randy Orton, all these guys. And it stopped with the complete over the top gimmicky sort of cartoonish children's stuff that WWF as someone like an NWA fan like yourself probably hated, but that's why I liked it. I mean, to me, it was like wrestling starts when you're like five years old, then like you sort of play off your nostalgia for it the rest of your life. So that's why I loved eighties WWF because you know, it's for children. I think we all knew that you can't hit someone in the face a hundred times and they don't bleed or bruise. And that's not sort of real, but you know, you take your, you know, logic out of it when you're watching much like a lot of things that you watch and uh, you know, it's fun. Um, And then (laughs) like, (laughs) how many times have I heard Jim Ross talk about that same exact thing? Well, my daddy came in one day and he saw them punching it into the turnbuckle and he said, son, there's no, you know, blood or no, you know, swelling on this guy's face. And just, he's he's like literally talked about that like no less than 900 times on his podcast. I get on these tangents with my friends who will say, you know, like someone will say like, Oh, that was so fake. (laughs) Excuse me. And I'll be like, please stop like debating. Let's fake. And like things that get on my, I I know we're going on like complete tangents. I know. I've got so many more lined up too. Trust me. But, but like, I hear like, uh, for example, Cornette and Brian last will talk about how they hate, the camera being in a guy's face as if they don't know the camera's there, right? They're they're inside a huddle and they're like, yeah, we're going to sneak attack them later. And they're like, well, they should be able to see that on TV and just stop it. You know what I'm like? That to me is taking it too seriously. Okay. Right. That now right. that's me. I know some people are like, Hey, we're trying, we're trying to make this hundred percent sports. And like, this is the way it should be covered. Like it's a real thing and people can watch it on a monitor. So why wouldn't you do it really? But like, you're also dealing in a world of drama and storyline and stuff like that, where not everything has to be presented like a complete mean Gene Oakland interview in the back. Um, you know, it's a lot more, uh, things have, Things have evolved since just the green screen interviews, you know, so I I'm okay with those. That doesn't bother me. And so to me, it's like, if you're going to get that nitpicky about stuff, then let's talk about, uh, Irish whips. Let's talk about, you know, like I said with Pete, I'm like, how many the people fakest thing in pro wrestling, Irish how many people, uh, yeah. When uh, macho man and Hulk Hogan, if, if Hulk Hogan's touching his, his, his girl, miss Elizabeth, uh, you know, and having lust in his eyes, how are we going to settle this? No, I'm not going to kick the shit out of you outside. We're going to wrestle, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> this is like, all of this is corny and dumb. It's, but it's fun. So like, stop taking it so seriously. You know, that's the problem I have with a, a lot of this stuff, but yeah. So going back to a bunch of points that you made earlier. So first things first, we are not as propagandized as we were, but we are so more in a different way. Now. Sure, I get that point. Yeah. So the 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 second thing is I was watching Theo Vaughn, who's a comedian, interview Hulk Hogan on his newest podcast. First of all, Hogan is just the biggest liar, maybe in the history. Embellisher big time. Yeah. Oh my god. And he he but to his credit, he follows the same threads all the time, as if they really did happen. So kudos to Hogan for that. But Theo Vaughn put it really, really succinctly about how I feel between you were talking about how I made uh, have I was more of an NWA fan, which is true. But Theo Vaughn was talking about how like he loved all wrestling, but he would look at his friends and be like, yeah, you watch WWF and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's really good. 
but the real fans watch both. They watch both WWF and the underground quote unquote NWA. And I, and I kind of looked at it the same way. I loved all of it. I loved the Hogan's, the warriors, all that kind of stuff. But I recognized them even as a kid as two separate things. Like the NWA was the real stuff, quote unquote, like, because there was more blood, it, you know, again, not as cartoony and yeah, stuff. It was more mature level. Right. Sure. But but WWF was still fantastic. I was talking with my friend about this the other day that when Ultimate Warrior and Hogan wrestled, there was no bigger story on the playground that Monday than Hogan sure. and Warrior. Every single kid, every single kid was talking about Hogan versus Warrior. I mean, it was the biggest news ever. So I think I just recognized it as like, okay, this is, you know, this is what it is, but you know, I like the NWA a little bit more because it's kind of grittier and bloodier and, you know, has a little bit more of an edge to it. But I think now, like, you know, you were talking about booking Metro pro um, and, you know, during the, do, uh, doing the uh, boss kind of storyline or whatever, you know, power, to yeah. yeah, the power storyline. Thank you. And to bring it back into more, um, more recent times, look at a company like CSW Strider just put out a thing saying this guy that, that he was booking cruel will no longer be on the shows because he couldn't honor his bookings and kept canceling at the last minute. So Strider just put it out there that this is what happened. So that's why it's hard for independent promoters who do want to strive for storylines. I tried to in Journey Pro. We definitely succeeded in the NWL and you tried to in Metro. The reason why it's so hard is because these guys are so unreliable. The, you know, a snowstorm, a thunderstorm comes in, you don't get that talent. The whole story could be blown. And then if you keep trying to like, you know, tow it down the line. It's just hard. You have to book storylines with the guys that are here. And even then, what if they get signed by AEW? So it's really hard to maintain some sense of storyline on the independence. Well, of course. Yeah. There's always, you know, there were, if someone's working for 50 bucks or whatever, and there's a snowstorm or their tire blows. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, a no show or a, uh, you know, last second cancellation happens constantly. And that's, you know, that's what happens with everything except WWE or AEW at this point. I mean, right. people, people are going to, you know, like, it's just like when WWE had all those different feeder companies, like at any point someone could be pulled up. So they might have some program on their local television, but you know, that's gone. Let's moving on. So that that's, yes, that that's hard to do at the lowest levels and stuff, but you know, you going back to your thing about like uh, the real fans watch both and it's a little bit more mature for NWA, WCW or NWA, and then WWF was more kid like, like in, in actuality, like, don't you, wouldn't you rather, don't you have a better like feeling about society? If you're actually talking to children who are in WWE, as opposed to, you know, 35 year old dudes are like, did you see raw? Like, I mean, dude, you're 35. Like, I mean, it's, it's fake wrestling. It's like fun to watch. And like, I, but some of these guys live and diet and I'm like, you know, I, you get into this when you're a child, you know I mean? This is like fun. And like I said, it's a nostalgia thing. There's so many things I like in my life because I loved it as a kid. So like you enjoy that throughout the, you know, whether it's, you know, hearing Jim Cornette talk or whether it's uh, other television shows that you enjoy and you just keep up with comic cons or whatever with it. Um, that's where you grow to be a fan. So that's why it always made more sense to me that uh, WWF is where like eighties to me is the perfect scenario of, 
you get them infiltrated as a child and then they grow up. Their parents have to sort of go along because a kid likes it. And then you just keep going that way. And the kids usually have some kind of loyalty to that program as they get older. Um, but, you know, these companies that sort of like uh, and I, I do think AEW to a degree sort of kowtows to that, you know, uh, not like even maybe slightly even older than what ECW sort of looked for. I'm just sort of like, this is not like, uh, I don't know, this this isn't the group that I feel in a perfect wrestling world that you'd go after. You'd go after like 15 and below, and then it just grows from there. But, and you know, because, you know, if you really want to get down to it, wrestling is, uh, especially now in 2023, you have to look at it as wrestling is what it is. Like the cat's out of the bag. You, we know you can't walk around acting like you're going to kill someone like, you know, Kane can't walk around this full gimmick acting He's going to like burn somebody or whatever. So you have to live within the parameters where we're at now. And to me, it's like, go back to the kids because you know, you're not, you're not, these guys are doing high spots in AEW to, uh, to you know probably more entertain the people that grew up watching wwe 20 years ago than they are you know a six-year-old that doesn't care if what the, what you know punching someone to him is a big deal so you know yeah and then and that's an interesting perspective that i never really thought of chris like when i started journey i remember telling you i was going to cater to 18 to 21 and 21 and over actually 21 and over because we were running a bar and you were like hey kids are you know you, you were trying to explain to me why you know because i was like oh i don't want to everybody does kids nwl did kids i don't want kids there but i mean it's totally true you can, if you can get the kids invested you can get the parents invested you know that's why sometimes you know at central states when there's kind of like something that's kind of teetering on more adult themed i'm like are we going to chase those kids away because now i see that you know getting the kids involved is i mean they'll buy merch you know what i mean i i really think it's the best way to go and that's why wwe has the product that they do yeah it's less it's less about you know i feel like you're going short term long term here i thought wwe was good uh because in the 80s they went you know pretty much all the way up through the 80s it was kid centric to a degree i mean children would go but in the 80s it definitely got more cartoonish with vince mcmahon as he took over his father's company and made it into what it was. And then in the 90s, I feel like all the people like myself, you, the people that grew up as a kid in the 80s right. were huge in the 90s, and that's what fed into it. Now, I feel like like you're talking about Journey or you're talking about with uh, – you know, I, of the two AEWs more this way, uh, AEW is going for that instant gratification, you know, sponsorship, you know, demographic right. level, but they're not necessarily building for the future. You know, I, I don't, because they're not necessarily going after the kids either. Um, but you know, like, I don't know, it's, it's evolved to a point to where it's like an adult show and it has been since the attitude era. And like, of course you can argue, well, it was the biggest era ever. Well, why was that? Because, the kids had grown up to be 20 years old and they loved it since they were six. Or is it because all of a sudden, you know, crash TV was a part of it. I, right. I always feel like it was the, I always feel like it was the uh, generation before the Vince had sort of infiltrated the children's level and they grew up and made the attitude era bigger. And that's why it hasn't really continued on since then, because they sort of stopped with all the kids sort of, you know, targeting. So I don't know. Something let me to think add, about it's, it, let me ask you this, and that's a, that's a really interesting point that you just brought up. Now, I have this debate all the time. I think ECW, we, we're both fans of ECW. Sure, right? loved it, yeah. Do you think, so Bischoff denies it, I've heard Bruce deny it. Do you think that truly ECW was the impetus or the catalyst for the Attitude Era? 
Well, I think it was definitely part of it. I mean, like they used to But they, they deny it, was- it though. They say that Vince never watched and and I'm like, sure, Vince may have never watched, but all the people underneath him did. Bruce did. You know, Bruce admits he saw it some and like, you know, a cornet knew about it. And, you know, um, I, I look, I don't think it, you had the attitude error without ECW. I don't. Um, not to know, that every, degree. Not to that. At that time, at that time, ECW didn't get a ton of. I heard of more about like, oh, Vince Russo and Ed Farrar. All they do is sit in the, the WWF cafeteria and watch Jerry Springer, you know, and there was a lot of that stuff. You know, the Robert yeah. Morton, sorry, Morton Downey Jr., not Robert, Morton Downey <laughs> dude, Jr. Morton and, Downey uh, Jr., dude. And, uh, and Jenny Jones and Jerry Springer, <laughs> all those shows were like hot then. And it was like, you know, they were all worked and looking back at it. But at the time you thought, oh my gosh, this KKK guy's up here with a guy from the NAACP and they get in a fist fight, you know, it was cool. Uh, that stuff, uh, you know, there was, that stuff was going on on top of ECW, right? So ECW, uh, looking back, and I, I don't know if you agree with this, I don't remember if I've asked you, but here's a, here's another example of like not sort of feeding into long-term like love. I loved ECW. But at the end, it was getting pretty bad, and yes. the replay value of ECW is not great. Yes, totally agree. And and it's weird because I would have not thought that because I loved ECW when I was in my 20s. I was also working for WWF, and I would also defend WWF to the nth degree that, like, you know, May Young's hand and Mark Henry and, you know, the lesbian angles and HLA and all this stuff was totally fine, and you guys need to get the burr out of your ass because, like, this is cool and you're not – but now as an adult and a parent, I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't have let my kids watch any of that. Did you, now, again, do you think, I, I love this topic because this, this is the stuff that I argue with people about a lot. So the first time I ever saw a tap out, you were talking about the MMA f- influence earlier. The yeah. first time I ever saw a tap out was ECW, was when Taz was doing, when he, when he fought Paul Varlins, was doing the whole shooter gimmick. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I swear to God, that is the first time I had ever seen like the actual, the guys tapping out and then you start seeing it infiltrate, obviously the bigger feds. I mean, that's my recollection. I mean, you don't, but there were submissions before that though. I mean, there was, but they didn't tap out. They would, they would like the guy would just shake his head like, yeah, or, or okay. whatever. You're but saying the physical motion of tapping out yes. is what you're because I mean, sharpshooters and a million other things before that happened. Oh, of course. Any but, of they, but, but tell me, show me a sharpshooter or a figure four where the guy tapped out before ECW was around. Well, okay. Um, but ECW was copying off MMA. So, I mean, it wasn't sure. MMA. They were using Paul Varlins. And by the way, I love the Paul Varlins reference because that's the so era good. of UFC I loved. You know, oh, I mean, dude, like, the best, the best. Like, everyone was different and had oh. a gimmick and it was cool. Uh, all my MMA friends like hate wrestling and like they hated Brock Lesnar winning and they thought he was a wrestling gimmick and they hated it. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry that he came in and actually gave the, uh, you know, the the locker room a little color because the, the place is so boring. It, everyone's just tough and tatted and hard ass, you know, like it's just so boring to me. I, I, I'm not saying you have to have uh, Doink the Clown in there. I'm just saying, like, have some kind of personality. That's all. Yeah. You know, have have some discernible difference between these people outside of what they, you know, when they go speeding or they, you know, uh, do some get busted for drugs or, you know, all the ink blotter police blotter stuff that happens in the world of mma now but john jones but you know i just uh <laughs> i just think that there's like a lot of um yes the actual physical visual of the tapping out maybe that did come from ecw of course kurt angle came over and that became a huge deal and 
you know, I don't remember when that first happened, but ECW had a lot of, you, you obviously have to give ECW credit for leading into that era because they were counterculture and different and sort of push the envelope more. So anytime you do that, uh, there's short and long-term uh, greatness to that, you know, or, and there's short and long-term horrible parts to it yeah. as well, you know, which Absolutely. is, you know, those like everyone in ECW, even though I love most of those guys, they're just, um, you know, my, most of them had a pretty horrible life. They, a lot of them did, you know, a lot of them had good lives, but a lot of them had bad lives. Um, I, Do you think the attitude era holds up when you watch it again? Um, I mean, Yes, I definitely really? more than ECW. Uh, yeah, I would. Here's the here's the problem with the Attitude Era now. When you're talking about it 25 years ago, it's just been done to death. Now, you know, what I mean, it's like yeah. they they have made how many how many uh, attempts have they gone to that well? I mean, me and Seth and I talk about this all the time. All they do is go back to that era all the time. I mean, that because that's when the true huge last batch of stars came either either worked there or were born out of that era. You know, I mean, whether it's Brock Batista, you know, John Cena coming out of that Randy Orton, or it's uh, all the guys that are still hanging on from that era, Edge, the Hardys, stuff like that, or the guys that were the tippy top guys at the, at that point, Stone Cold, Rock, Undertaker, even Jericho at that point, like you know, Triple H, Mick Foley, uh, they're all from that era. So I get why you go back to that because it's hard to beat. You know, the '80s and '90s are hard to beat as far as longevity of memorable guys and gimmicks and era, but. I don't know. For the longest time, I could go back and watch, you know, all the stuff with Vince McMahon and Stone Cold. That stuff is so great. But has it been beaten to dirt? Yes, it has. So, you know, it's not like I want to go back and watch it all the time now because I've seen, you know, I've heard people go back and maybe you're one that's like, you go back and watch that. It's all horrible except Stone Cold. I'm like, okay, maybe. I don't know. You give a little bit more, you give a little bit more leeway when the top, angle is so good sort of like now with you know the bloodline uh it doesn't really matter if you know um gable and them are not as good or whatever maybe some yeah. of them, maybe they get a little bit more positivity because the bloodline's so good but you know yeah sure like some of the stuff was goofy looking back now but i mean what era is better like 80s what what, what what's better yeah, I mean, it, it. I guess it depends what you're looking for. Like, I've gone back sure. and watched some of the Attitude Era stuff, and some of it was really good. What I really enjoy about it is that every segment seemed important, no matter who was in it. Every yeah. segment seemed important. Now, from a on a weekly television basis, was the wrestling really great? No, it wasn't. But and were some of the angles and gimmicks stupid? No, I mean, yes, they were, but. As a whole, if you're looking for entertainment value, it's hard to beat the Attitude Era. Now, if you're looking for pure pro wrestling, obviously you're not going to find it in the Attitude Era. So I think it, it really just depends on what you're looking for. Well, I'm looking for the most eyeballs and the most money I could possibly make. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't care if you loved Ring of Honor. It never did crap. It never drew crap. It's like a fourth-rate show now. It was when it died. So, you know, I mean, it's it's a cool place for people. It was a cool place for people that we liked to go get a job. Right. But as far as like that kind of company being like anything more than just a small niche, it, that's all it ever was. I mean, I, you know, and the people that love like pure, pure wrestling, um, I, I just wasn't that guy. You know, you were. Right. I, I just yep. wasn't. I, I, I was yep. I'm in this for entertainment. I don't need to right. see a 30 minute, you know, Broadway every show. So whatever. 
All right. Well, let's move on with the show here and go to some news and notes. That's that's the stinger I just made for us. Are you, are wow, you that's impressive. It was. <laughs> How impressed are you? I need to see it on your face. Good. I, I pretty much showed you right there. Like, wow, that's impressive. Yes. Yes. All right. So Buff Bagwell. Here we go again. Old Buff. Oh, I haven't heard this. What happened? Okay. So the original story is Buff Bagwell was arrested on July 13th for speeding and driving under the influence. According to Cobb County Sheriff's Office records, he was released two days later on July 15th. Now, an update on that story is Buff Bagwell has commented on the incident saying that his arrest was related related to a prior issue. And Bagwell says he is still living a sober lifestyle. Just wanted to clarify to everyone, Bagwell says, that I'm 11 months sober tomorrow. I see there's news out that I had spent time in jail for a DUI, he wrote. But this was from the original offense years ago. I did a recent uh, sanction. I, I did get a recent sanction because I didn't document a recent trip out of state properly. So... I wonder if that was when he came and wrestled for three XW up in I, dude, <laughs> right? Right. That's what I was thinking too. Well, that was right uh, around the time. Uh, man, he's been, he's been out and about me. I mean, he looks great in the appearances that I've seen. Um, so what do you think of like kind of the DDP sober guy? I mean, do you think out of everybody, I, I don't know what you heard about buff when you were working in WWF, um is this is is this going to be a happy ending i mean are we hoping for a happy ending here with buff bagwell you know buff always seemed to have a little bit better home life. you know his mother yes. was obviously we've heard all about his mom but he's like he seemingly had a pretty supportive family growing up which a lot of these guys don't so uh i know he got hot and heavy into the drugs and alcohol mm-hmm. and all the stuff he had issues with but I don't know. I mean, he he was a gigolo after wrestling. He was. He was. <laughs> there were so many things he's done that weren't exactly, uh, you know, PC or PG, whatever. But uh, you know, I don't know. He's he seems he is not on my short list of guys that that I say, holy shit, how's this guy still alive? Which Scott Hall and Jake Roberts was always on. You know, so those two guys, Scott Hall has obviously sadly passed away, and he's one yes. of the best wrestlers I've ever seen. Like just size-wise, charisma, everything. But, Absolutely. But every time someone else died, I'd look at my friends and be like, Scott Hall and Jake Roberts are still alive. <laughs> and Ric Flair, really, at this point. Dude, right? Uh, Come on. <laughs> I mean, this Come is on. morbid, but I like these guys. It's just weird how genetics and like things dealing with, you know, some people are set up better to, you know, put their bodies and lives through hell than others. And uh, yeah, they've, I mean, Jake Roberts, obviously he's gone through the D- DDP program and, He's uh, lived uh, that life. I don't have uh, no idea if he's clean and sober now, but he looks a lot hell better than he did when I was running Metro Pro. Because when I was trying to book that dude 15 years ago, it was like, um, you know, hurting cats. Yeah, it was. It was so weird to try to track him down because he was. Gosh, there's some classic YouTube videos of Jake Roberts like doing a show like in the middle of a field. Have you seen that one where he like? Oh, dude, legendary. You want to play 21? No, no, that's Heroes of Wrestling. Oh. I'm talking about the one where it's outside, and he like he basically walks to the ring, and the ring's like looks like it's like ten people in lawn chairs outside in this ring, and he walks to the ring, and if I recall, he just goes to the ring, gives the guy a DDT, pins him, and like walks out. It was like the dumbest, but that was like the height of his sort of beyond the mat, like oh my gosh, he's so he's out die. there. 
yeah and now he's uh, compared to that he looks a, a million bucks yeah yeah all right the next story that we have um following up on kind of something that we were talking about last week is now th- i find this actually kind of interesting and the, uh, uh jim Cornette, who we talk about a lot kind of mm-hmm. and brian last do a really good breakdown but aw's uh collision viewership is increasing and it holds steady throughout the entire show. Yeah, they've talked about that. Which is really fascinating. So uh, Sean, uh, good old SRS of Fightful says that <coughs> 618,000 people t- tuned in on Saturday. And that's up from uh, 579,000. The previous show with the, excuse me, the really good tag team match. <coughs> and that show was headlined by CM Punk and Darby Allen. Um, going against uh, oh god, who they uh, who, who, uh, they went against Christian Cage and Ricky Starks, uh, okay, which was so a really good tag team match. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of interesting to see that I think Collision. I mean, this might be a little bit early, but I think Collision is actually picking up some like lapsed wrestling fans because I think word is actually starting to get out. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, Cornette helps with that by promoting sure. it on his podcast, saying sure. oh, it's the best wrestling show in so many years. Uh, and he puts over the bloodline and stuff. But oh, as a whole, he doesn't put over WWF. He just no. puts over the bloodline. Right. Uh, and Roman Reigns and Paul and everyone else involved with that angle. But, uh, you know, yeah, dude, uh, Collision is doing it the way that probably, again, long-term play here where – First of all, they probably got a better rating this week. Of course, you can base that on last week's show. You know, you can base that off the, oh, everyone heard about the big FTR match. So I don't think it's as much maybe uh, mm. looking forward to what was booked for the show coming up versus the one that they saw last week that everyone said was so good in that hour on that hour tag match. But, mm. you know, this is the way that you should be doing it. You know, Tony is so used to having major announcements and new signees and all these major things to make splashes every week on Dynamite that – you know, it might pop a rating here and there, but as we see, it goes straight back down right after that. But this show, they're actually building slowly, getting the word out, and they're they're doing it right, in my opinion, where it's like, okay, we're just going to do this the way we want. We're going to make it a pure wrestling fan show, and we're just going to keep doing it, and people will be coming aboard. And it's, it's like losing weight, right? Like, you want to lose weight like a couple pounds a week. You don't want to lose 20 in one week, right? No. And that's what it sort of is at uh, Dynamite, is you lose 20 and it goes back down. Now, this one here, they're, I think they're steadily climbing. And who knows what their cap's going to be on a Saturday night, but, you know, it's trending in a better way than any of their other shows, so that's great. All right, so before we get to this interview, let's make your prediction. What is peak viewership? And then we can go back to this, and I'll write it down somewhere. Or we can just go listen to it, whatever. What is Collision's peak viewership in the year 2023? What's going to be the highest number that it gets and we will we will see if uh what our predictions are i have no idea if it could i don't think it i don't know if it'll sniff a million or not i'm I'm not sure i think it'll take a while to get there but um you know because it's i mean a million viewers in cable in general now is good you know oh yeah it's so weird to see those numbers so low but you know when when someone does like when dynamite does poorly and then Meltzer's like, well, it's the number one show on cable this week. And I'm like, wow, it's just the bar is so low now. Um, I, I don't know, probably in the eight or nine hundreds, you know, I would think is maybe you get there. Uh, well, give me, give me a little bit more specific. Oh my gosh. 910,000. Ooh. Okay. Man, 
I, nine, I'm 10, actually, I, 142. I, what's up? Nine hundred and ten thousand one hundred and forty-two. I think they'll hit that. <laughs> We're just going to do nine hundred ten thousand. That's surprising. I really thought you were going to go much lower than that. I'm going to say peak for this year in 2023 is eight hundred and twenty-five thousand. Yeah, that'd be great too. I mean, okay, look, just the sustainability we'll <laughs> of like going up the hill is you know slowly building is good for that. So we'll see. I mean, imagine that would be a hell of an increase on a Saturday night. I think coming out of the Wembley show, I think you're going to see those numbers do a lot better. I think I think the Wembley show is going to set. Uh, collision in the, in the right direction. All right, Chris, we'll go ahead and uh, set us in the right direction and tell us about the interview this week. So our interviewee this week is uh, a man called the human wrecking ball, Pete Madden. And he has um, been wrestling in St. Louis, Milwaukee, St. Louis and Kansas city since he says he starts in 1993. Um, he was a guy that he came to Metro pro in 2010 he came uh, sort of as a – he came because he, he had had, obviously, a lot of credibility at that point in St. Louis. He wrestled for Gateway Championship Wrestling, which I don't know if you've heard of them, Gabe, but that was sort of like, um, oh, like the Midwest version of ECW in a way uh, for a few years. Um, it sort of started in the late 90s, 98, 99, somewhere there, and I don't think it lasted much past like 03, 04, something like that, but – it was uh, it was a short spurt, but it, they used a ton of ECW guys, RVD, like all the big names, Sabu, all those dudes went through Gateway Championship Wrestling. They had, and if you go online uh, and you can, and I was looking at this before Metro Pro was ever around, I would look and they'd have these uh, adult only shows, and it was real gritty, you know. And I that's why I loved ECW too. It wasn't shiny, and uh, Pete Baden was part of all that. He. He, he had battles and friendships with a guy named Nikki Strychnine, and that's where Evan Bourne started Matt Seidel. We got to start there because he's from St. Louis. And, dude, it's just a cavalcade of sort of adult, really edgy characters. And Pete Madden is not a uh, perverse guy in any way. However, much like Jeremy Wyatt and Michael Strider, he has a knack for having no pain and uh, he was the first guy. I think he he started the, a chair salt, a moon salt with a chair, and he brought that to Metro Pro. And when he first did it, I was like, "Oh my god, how's he not killing somebody?" You know, because when he came up, he was probably he had to been around forty when he started, at least. I don't know. Oh, wow. He was older, you know, and he would do the chair salt, and um, you know, he perfected that. He really did. And he was a he was a mainstay, and he was always in a great mood. And he was friends with Magic Man. He brought Magic Man around where people love the Magic Man interview. And Pete has a million stories about Magic Man that he didn't tell. Uh, but uh, he also brought around Mischief. He was friends with all those St. Louis guys. And he was just a great conduit of people to come into Metro Pro. And like his credibility with other people and him saying like how good of a time he had at Metro Pro led to a lot of me having some cool other people wanting bookings there. Um, but anyway, he was the, the guy Gabe that he, and we joke about it in this interview, but he was the guy that would always come every show. And this wasn't a joke at first. He'd come up and be like, you need me to hit the color tonight, dude. He would like want to get every <laughs> show. Okay. And he was just, he doesn't have like an Abdullah head or anything. He just, but he was, he would bleed anytime you wanted him to, he would love using blood and spots and he loved wrestling madman Pondo. And Oh he, man. Uh, does he, oh, does yeah. he? Oh, wow. Oh, oh okay. yeah. He has battles with him. He talks about in this interview, he talks about the chance that he was about to go wrestle in Japan 
And it, at the last second, it got pulled out from under him. And that was like his big dream of doing that. Wow. But um, there's this one spot at Metro Pro that it was with the commission and whatever, but he wanted to do it. And they pulled out the the commission, uh, pulled out the bag of thumbtacks, put him on the apron and just him and Evangelistico and Matt Jackson just took it. Pierre Abernathy, whatever you know, mess took his head and jammed his head into those thumbtacks about 10 times, like oh, wow. forehead straight into the, I mean, it was head banging into the thumbtacks. He gets up, there's like 30 thumbtacks in his head, blood everywhere. And I was like, I don't know if this can go on my television network, <laughs> but it, I believe it did. But uh, anyway, he was always willing to do anything. Never had a problem putting anybody over. Always was like the guy that if you wanted a good comedy match, he was the, your guy. And again, uh, a, a pleasure to work with because he always had an awesome attitude. And uh, he is known uh, fondly as the human wrecking ball, Pete Madden. All right, so let's get to that interview right now, right here on the worst territory in the world. It's the worst territory. Joined now by my longtime friend, the human wrecking ball, Pete Madden, who I met, man, 2010. I had never met this guy before. And I, Pete, I was trying to remember the first time I met you. I believe you came into town with Jim and Crystal Yount, and that is how we made an introduction. Is that how you remember it? Yeah, that's the first time that we were like interacting with each other, but I think you might've seen me at a show in Mexico, Missouri years before that. Yes. The, the old Midwest renegade wrestling. Cause when I, and you know the story, but just to tell people that don't know it, like when I was in college, I went to university of Missouri. I had a wrestling radio show called body slam. And I have these tapes, Pete, that I have, and I want to like transcribe them because I don't know <laughs> if you were on there, but I'm, I just, for some reason, I remember the Canadian porn star was on there. Jacques Lafleur. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to, so I need to get those and put them on here. But anyway, I have, uh, we, I was doing Body Slam and there was this MRW. And at the time, I really didn't know what independent wrestling was. So I go up and, uh, I, of course, ended up doing a, a video feature on Violent Jay Caster. But when, when I went to that show, I probably met you. I saw Adam Pierce the first time. Um, I saw a real skinny guy who ended up being Travis Cook as a referee and yep. uh yeah that that might have been the very first time i ever laid eyes on you the mrw days you know the mrw days we would bring in guys like uh you know billy joe eaton and uh the chicago dave prazak guys mm -hmm. so you'd see an ace steel adam pierce uh god there was a couple other guys there was a guy named donovan something or other can't remember that guy's name but anyway yeah it was we would bring in this crew of Chicago guys to supplement our own. Oh, you know, the Irish assassin, Pat Leahy. There you go. Uh, I ran into Pat Leahy, Ace Steel, and one other guy, and I can't remember who the other guy was, at like an oasis. Uh, those are basically restaurants over the roadways in Chicago. Okay. I was in there in the middle of the night going to grab a burger, and all of a sudden I see them. And I'm like, hey, what do you know? They're like, oh, my God, this is random. And there's Pete Madden. So we were talking and they're like, yeah, we're in friend to see, you know, we're in town to see this friend of ours do this athletic thing. They were in town to see the CM Punk shoot fight, the real, that was that night. I just didn't put the, you know, I didn't do the math in my head and figure it out. Cool. So, yeah. So that was, yeah, you're talking, that was only like five, seven years ago, right? I mean, we're talking when he fought yeah. his first UFC fight you're talking about. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny because, uh, I'll run into people at the weirdest places and all of a sudden there'd be like some guy that I wrestled or some referee. And when you, you know, I started in 93. So, you know, you can't 
swing a dead cat without hitting a guy that I've lost to. <laughs> and then, you know, I'm down in St. Louis and somebody will come around the corner and they'll be like, you remind me of that guy. I'm like, yeah, that, that was me back in the day. <laughs> well, let's talk about how you got started. 93. So how was independent wrestling in 93? Because of course it blew up, you know, every Michael Strider and all these guys joined, you know, started doing it when the attitude era just really blew up in 97, 98 and independents were everywhere selling out. But how was 93? It was really weird because they had just gone from the era of the territories where guys could make money. And the territories had kind of just, that was the end of the, you know, the Portland. And, you know, you could still buy Pro Wrestling Illustrated and see Memphis. Like AWA Portland. was still, like, hanging on yeah. the early 90s, you know. Yeah, and then, like, you know, Texas had Killer Brooks running the Sportatorium. And um, there was guys out on the East Coast, like, uh, was that Boston bad boy Tony Rumble mm-hmm. was running. And uh, there was IWCCW in New Jersey. And all that other stuff. And then it was the beginning of Eastern Championship Wrestling with, with Paul Heyman. But at the time, there'd be like a Dennis Coraluzzo, and there would be um, whoever the guy was that was running NWA at that time. Uh, I don't, but anyway, yeah. So like there were guys that made money. You know, I'd be in a locker room with guys that were like, we used to make a lot of money. We used to be on wrestling at the Chase, you know. And then now we're wrestling at the South Broadway Athletic Club and we're making. You know, the, the established guys would make a hundred bucks. I would walk in and work twice and get paid 20 bucks by Tony Costa. Yeah. And again, I was, I felt very privileged to have a practice spot and be able to train with these guys, much less get paid to go out and actually wrestle. But, um, it was, uh, kayfabe was still in effect. So you did not tell anybody that this stuff is prearranged, choreographed. If you use the word fake, the other wrestlers would literally throw a beating at you. Yeah. And uh, everyone had to go out and be able to work. So I was at the tail end of the thing where you could go into the ring and the referee would tell you who was going over and how many minutes, and you had to just work your way through a match. As the years have gone by, guys have gotten more into working out the spots, even going to a practice ring and working out the spots ahead of time. But one of the last guys that I worked that could do a whole match off the top of his head impromptu was Jeremy Wyatt, who I think is one of the best workers I've ever seen on the indie level. Mm-hmm. And I got in the ring with that guy. We only had five minutes to talk and he was just amazing. He just walked me through the entire match, you know, and it was, it was crazy how good that guy was at the old style. And I've also seen the guy go out there and do matches where like the move, the, you know, the spots are so intricate that they had to be pre-planned so he can do both. Mm-hmm. And I could kind of do both. So, that's cool. But then there were guys from back in the day that would refuse under any circumstances to talk about what they were going to do out in the ring. Like, do you remember an indie worker from the WCW hardcore division? Bull Payne. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bull Payne was from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin, which was hilarious because I ran into him in Memphis, Tennessee. And we were working the New Daisy Theater on Beale Street. And I was supposed to work Ty Dalton, so I had a four-hour car ride with this indie worker, Ty Dalton, great guy. He's out by you. He, he runs the Captain Walt Inn. Yes, in, in Herman. I have not stayed yeah. there. Herman, Missouri, big wine country over there. But, yes, I I, st- I will talk to Ty Dalton. And uh, You should. He's he's hilarious. He is. He is. So we, I'm, you know, we're on the four-hour car ride, and he's, like, working out the spots with me. And we get there, and um, another indie worker named Madman Pondo was there, but the guy he was supposed to work was hurt. And the promoter turned to me and he goes, well, who can work with Pondo? And he goes, Pete, you've worked with Pondo. 
And then Ty's like, no, we got a match worked out. And he started flipping out, right? And I'm like, oh, what's just, what, what just happened? And so, you know, I've got a singlet and wrestling shoes and, kick, you know, kick pads and knee pads. And then I'm in a fans bring weapons to the ring match where Pondo was wearing like jeans and a t-shirt and wrist tape up to his elbows and, you know, the whole nine yards. So Ty was losing his mind. He had to go work bullpen. And so we're getting introduced and he's, yeah, my name's Jim. I'm from Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. And I, I just said, Ernie Von Schlader in country. Cause that's the local car dealer. <laughs> and he looked at me like I was nuts, man. He goes, how do you know that? Like, ah, I'm a Wisconsin guy too. But uh, famously that night, Bullpain picked up a garbage can that was chained to a street post, and he threw it like a tetherball, and it smashed Ty Dalton in the head. And he was suplexing him on the cobblestones, you know, up and down Beale Street. And I fell on a truck bumper, and I got eight stitches in the hip. So we we both ended up in the hospital. And, uh, you know, it was one of those crazy nights down in Memphis, you know, working for Terry Golden. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, the original question was, what was 93 like? It was weird. It was this in-between period where nobody made money. Nobody cared. There wasn't a lot going on. It was mostly old school guys, and the, the spot guys hadn't come around yet. So that's that was kind of what ninety three was very low paydays. So how did you what how did you get into wrestling? Like this is about Central States, and the reason why obviously you're involved with uh, talking to me about this is because I I was uh, booking you a lot, obviously at Metro Pro Wrestling in Kansas City. But growing up, did you watch? I, I know from Milwaukee, and then you went to St. Louis, probably to your your rock and roll and your wrestling career down there. Mm-hmm. But uh, how did uh, how did you get? Who did you grow up watching, and what made you want to do this? All right, so I grew up in the city, South Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We have one statue in our town, and it's of a pro wrestler. So there was a local pro wrestler here, uh, Reggie Lazowski, the crusher. Or actually, mm-hmm. they call him the crusher. Mm-hmm. Great promo, great physique for back in the day. And um, he played high school football with my dad. My dad was a guard. He was making a block, and he fell on his face. And then he said it was just shooting stars and like a white flash. He, the Crusher, who had not had a growth spurt yet, they were still kids, but the Crusher had accidentally stepped on my dad's neck and herniated the disc in his neck and broke his collarbone. And my dad said that my appreciation of wrestling went through the Crusher's foot into his neck and then into me. <laughs> what a, so, I mean, what a connection, though, that you have that with your dad and one of the most famous guys in the Midwest. Yeah, yeah. And then what's funny is over the years – and of course, everyone worships the ground the Crusher walks on. He passed away a few years ago. Again, there's a statue and a festival dedicated to his legacy in my hometown. <laughs> and I'll run into guys like Honky Tonk Man. He'll be like, "The Crusher was the shits, man." And <laughs> Wayne will tell a story about the Crusher just being like an old guy and not wanting to do anything, and somebody had to lace his boots for him and whatever. I mean, to us, he was like you know a, a wrestling god to us. But I grew up watching AWA. Loved Dr. X was like my favorite guy. And then, you know, Ray Stevens, even as a kid, I could see the heels were doing some of the better stuff. Ray Stevens always stuck out to me. Ray the Crippler Stevens. Of course, he was fantastic, yeah. Okay, so now here comes a great story that'll tie into all the Midwest type stuff. I'm working a show. We're going from St. Louis up to Mantino, Illinois to work for this guy, Mike Bonomo at WWA which was an offshoot of Windy City Wrestling. It was like a couple guys rebelled and went and did their own thing. So I'm in a car with Ron Powers, uh, who was a famous 
like indie guy, but he was also in the opening of Monday Night Nitro twice. He was in the rack with Luger, and he was getting choke slammed by the Giants. So those were his. That's his claim to fame. Well, that's good. Anyway, Powers is driving. Next to him is Bob Orton Jr. So I'm I'm in the car with like the cowboy, the ace, the bodyguard, right? That's cool. Yeah. And sitting next to me is the guy I'm working, Danny Boy. And Danny Boy was like this uh, high flying guy that could do the Malenko, Benoit, um, Eddie Guerrero stuff, you know. Before we get in the car, Powers just turns and pokes a finger in my chest. He goes, Do not mark out. I know you. You're going to mark out. And I'm like, Well, I grew up watching the guy. He's, Do not mark out. Do not embarrass me. Don't bother Bob Orton. I'm like, Okay. So we get in the car. And then, you know, there's like two hours of pretty much silence of me and Danny Boy going back and forth. There's a moment, of, you know, a minute goes by and there's nothing on the radio and we're driving. I go, hey, Bob, <laughs> I see Ron Powers' eyeballs in the rearview mirror, and you can just see the rage coming through him. And I'm like, hey, Bob, I just wanted to let you know that, you know, when I was growing up, when you came into AWA, it was one of the greatest moments ever. My buddy Al and I used to watch every week, and we loved the high flyers. And, you know, you came in, I'm doing, I'm doing the whole setup to him, right? And he's rolling his eyes and smoking a cigarette. And I go, uh, and then we didn't know if you were a good guy or a bad guy. And they were showing us grainy black and white tape of you doing jumping pile drivers and superplexes, which we had never seen before. And then you came out and you killed a bunch of guys, but you were, didn't really cheat. Then all of a sudden you were with Bobby Heenan and you did a pile driver on Jim Brunzel on the cement floor. And Vern's wife came out. So we knew it was serious. You know, like we were practically in tears, man. We were losing our minds. And then uh, Orton just takes a big drag on the cigarette and he goes, Jesus Christ, kid, don't you ever shut up. <laughs> I'm looking up and Powers, Powers' eyes are just like staring at me. And I see him shaking his head and I'm he like, oh, kill you. oh he, we got out of the car and he goes, I knew you were going to mark out. I know. I, I, I just knew you were going to mark out. I can't take you anywhere. <laughs> Whatever, man. So, but that was like, Oh, you, know. Man. you know, so many of the old guys, though, love those stories. I, I understand, like, they're not going to put over you putting them over. That's just part yeah. of it, right? But, I mean, at the end of the, I'm sure he and, like, none of these guys do this and don't like people talking about how they, you know, worship them nah. growing up. I mean, come well, on. Well, you brought in Honky Talk, man, and I had worked the show with him in the year 2000, and this was 2014. Uh-huh. So I hadn't seen him in 14 years, but he had told me a story about his early days in Memphis, and, uh, he told me about one of the veterans every time he was going out to do his, you know, cause he was the bleeder when he first came in, everything was kind of hardcore. Mm-hmm. And one of the veterans would say, got your sword kid. So <laughs> he was walking into that area, Turner wreck and sat down in a chair. And I, I walked up and I said, got your sword kid. And his eyes lit up and he goes, there was a veteran. He, I go to Wayne, you told me the story in 20, 2000 or whatever. We were at university of Indiana wrestling. So, yeah, it was it was pretty funny. But that's yeah, good. Old... That, that's cool to bring up something like that because that's obviously it's going to open the door immediately for you because he oh, knows yeah. he knows what you brought up. But you said something that's interesting. You you talk about the crusher and how people just bury him and say how horrible he was. That that's similar to when I talk to people about Kansas City because 
you know, people always just bury, you know, a lot of things about Kansas City, but mostly like Bulldog Bob Brown, how horribly what Rufus R. Jones, you know, the athleticism was subpar. They, you know, they, they their interviews weren't the best, but they did have a lot of, you know, just oozing charisma, just maybe not the greatest promos in the world, but they were, you know, just so great at reactions and stuff. But anyway, uh, if you go anywhere else to, and this is very true in a lot of territories, if you go anywhere else, they'll bury your territory, but they knew in your territory, your guys were like gods and like so it doesn't really matter you know what i mean yeah and when i when i say when people say horrible things about bulldog <laughs> bob brown or rufus or bob geigel or any not no one ever really says anything bad about harley but if they say it bad about any of the other sort of stalwarts in this area people get upset because you know that that, that doesn't jibe with their childhood but what's funny is in the awa when rufus jones came up here to work for Vern. Rufus Jones was like the most over guy ever, man. Everyone loved Rufus Jones. And I'd go to my grade school. Everyone would be saying, save the bones for Rufus Jones because Rufus don't eat no meat. And then, of course, you know, kids play on the playground. And we're all doing like pseudo wrestling stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then some guy would start doing the, um, like the arms churning, like a, the pistons on a train. The freight train, be, yeah, yeah. He'd be doing the freight train and all of a sudden like, He'd start running around and barreling into people, and we would all dutifully fall and put the guy over because he was Rufus Jones at that point, you know. That so wouldn't and, happen now. That would you, that would land everyone in trouble. <laughs> oh yeah, that school's liability and insurance. There'd be lawyers, you know. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. oh my god. Well, yeah, just, we loved Rufus up here. No, dude, they were. I mean, these guys. As, as I've told you stories about this before, and you've been around a lot too. It's like. Uh, you know, Bob Brown, Rufus, Bob Geigel, Mike George, um, you know, geez, the list goes on and on of people that were here uh, outside of Harley Race, of course. We, see, we, up here, we would see the wrestling magazines and we would talk about these other areas that you'd never get to see and there was so much mystery. And we just assumed, because we saw Harley Race and Rufus Jones and Bulldog Bob Brown, we just assumed that Kansas City was a hotbed. We sure. just assumed that St. Louis wouldn't know was a that. Hotbed. You wouldn't know otherwise, right? You know, then. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, you see a picture in the, uh, the, you know, one of the wrestling magazines in black and white. There'd be some guy with a crimson mask. And we'd be like, man, we haven't seen anybody bleed in AWA since 72 when um, superstar Billy Graham took the arm wrestling table and hit Wahoo McDaniels over the head. Mm-hmm. We hadn't seen blood on TV. They stopped doing blood on AWA TV in about 73 or 74. Okay. And then you would see, like, they would show a, a still photo, like um, the interviewer, Roger Kent, pre-Gene Okerlund, would just hold up a picture of one of the wrestlers, and the guy would have the crimson mask going. And then he'd say, fans, if you want to see this in person, you got to come to the shows, you know. And, sure, sure. But AWA, they, they never – it was rare that you'd see a competitive match on AWA TV. Like, a couple times a year, something weird would happen, and two guys that were – like you know, an over baby face and an over heel would get in the ring together on TV, and uh, that's another thing that changed. There's no jobbers anymore. No, I mean they take they. Well, I mean in the WWE or whatever's going on now, AEW, they have guys that do jobs, but they're they're winning. It seems like they keep they try to keep everyone strong. Exactly. No one's everyone's strong. No one's weak, and it makes everything weak. Really, in the end, I, it, it, that's exactly what I kind of thought because. We loved wrestling so much that we would watch, and we actually idolized, and there were T-shirts made of this guy, Kenny J, Kenny the Sodbuster J, and the guy had, like, the losing streak of all losing streaks. And all of a sudden, just out of the blue on one Saturday night at 5 o'clock, 
It's going to be Kenny J and a tag team partner going up against the recently crowned champions of Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson. And we think, well, this is going to be, you know, a complete wipeout of a match, right? Well, the, the partner takes off his shirt and he's got a ripped physique. It's Paul Ellering. Before he became a heel, mm-hmm. he had a full head of hair and a great physique. They win the first fall. And we're like literally on the telephones calling our friends, turn on the TV, turn on the TV, you won't believe it. You know, we were so excited as kids. Wrestling was like NFL football or or the NBA or whatever, you know. I mean, in my hometown, we had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And at the time, I think more people were fans of the Crusher. Yeah. It was just insane the level, you know. So I, I did come up in a hotbed, but I almost had my eye on the other areas. And Kansas City was one. And I always remember looking at Portland. And I remember looking at Dallas. Because we would get, on cable TV later, you, you'd get a snippet of something here or there. You'd see like a couple minutes of the Von Erics, one-man gang, and then uh, Maniac Mark Levin. You would see like, we got IWCCW a couple times just randomly. It was like they must have had a tape laying around and shoved it in <laughs> over the test pattern or something. Yeah. You you just see this stuff, you know, and uh, there, it was like the, there wasn't the instant access and the internet and the ability to call up stuff and see it. So when you saw stuff, it was a big deal. So do you think I, I always my theory is that wrestling is I, I'm, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that have been ruined by computers and the Internet, the the Kodak industry, you know, a lot of a lot of different things. But like uh, wrestling to me, I always say is like even even with all the other problems that it had, you know, the, of course, I always complain about political correctness has ruined wrestling. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of things have. But the Internet has ruined wrestling more than anything in the way that it was when you're talking about because no one can go around the horn anymore. You know, it's all yeah. everything's on record now. And and like you said, um, you know, when you're describing no one, there wasn't a competitive match. That's how growing up I watched WWF primetime wrestling. And that's how it was. Yes. There was it was job. It was Rusty Brooks taking on Bret Hart or whatever, you know, yes. and, that, and that's how it was. But then every once in a while, they'd have a main event of oh jim the anvil nighthart taking on uh you know demolition smash you know and i'm like mm-hmm. okay well this is at least they're not two singles guys and i guess you know since it's tag tag it doesn't really matter who loses or wins in this but there's two name guys this is huge you know I, that yes. and that has changed so much now of course so it's oversaturation and like the instant satisfaction and availability that it's kind of like made it not as special as it was. Well, it's changed now. Like they don't have to sell tickets. They selling tickets is sort of secondary or, or tertiary or whatever to uh, putting on a good television product because they're getting paid millions of dollars to do that by whoever content provider is paying them. You know, so now you have to have competitive matches because gone. You cannot have just a bunch of like you know jobbers losing to top guys because that's obviously not going to keep people's attention when they're paying you a million dollars a week or whatever they are. Well, there's there's the arms race of like spots and violence also, but you you know you were asking me when I came in, I came in pre-internet, and then I was also involved post-internet. That guy I was talking about earlier, Danny Boy Hawkins, and I had a match that we had worked out, and we had it so flawless that we never had to call anything in the ring. We would just go, yeah. and it was a hundred miles an hour, and we would go. But we did the same match in about like. 14 or 15 different cities over the summer of 96 because no one saw it. We could just keep doing the same match over and over. And that's the way it was back in the day with, with the WWE, the AWA guys would go out there and they would work their match and in the small towns 
And then because there was no video of that that was readily available, they could continue to work on that match until it got to the garden for the blow off or until it got to the Chicago show or the show before Christmas for Vern or whatever it happened to be, you know? Um, but I've seen both sides of that. So I came in on the cusp of guys being able to work a match cold guys being able to go on a, on a loop and do the same match with the same guy, like 15 times. And then also the instant gratification, the availability age, the oversaturation age, where if you start doing a move in the ring, some guy that lives in his mom's basement wearing a black shirt that's never seen a woman naked is going to yell out what spot you're about to do. Sure. You know, and it's like, oh, my God, this guy's yelling out my spots as I'm doing them. It's like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> so yeah, it the, sucks. Yeah, and again, it's like, what's the solution? There is none. It's it's Pandora's box, man. You know, the, you can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. No, you have to adjust. Yeah. And, like, how people defining uh, define adjusting to that is, you know, under – scrutiny on how you want to adjust to it sometimes you can act like well everyone knows what it is now so we're just going to put on a good show other ones are just like you know ratcheting up the athleticism or just the the danger levels whatever you want to call it of the the insane spots you know there's always the overkill there's always the hyper athleticism and the guys and this is funny because i don't really follow wrestling and i haven't since 99 the one show that I used to tape and well, I, I did tape New Japan for a while because mm-hmm. I thought I would like it because it's got all the elements that I'd like. Sure. But it was so dry that I, I just didn't get into it. Uh-huh. I ended up never watching some of the shows I taped. I watched the those. Show, you're talking about when Kevin Kelly was calling them or JR was for a while there. Yeah, they, they were on my cable system for a while. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, they were in like on Axis, uh, yes. Axis TV. So it's like um, I tried to watch it too, and I I don't have the love for Japanese wrestling like you do. No. I know you're – Japanese women's wrestling, I think no no bigger cheerleader than you, I don't think. Well, that's where I based all of my stuff out of. It's it's like, well, who do you like in women's wrestling? Well, it was Akira Hokuto and Bull Nakano and um, – Oh God! What what was that lady? Naomi Ozaki, Megumi Kudo. Um, I'm I'm missing the one Karu. You know the one that was in the Marine Wolf. Uh, you don't know. But anyway, I, I just the jumping bomb the, angels. Yes, jumping bomb angels and like you know, um, Devil Masami and all that. I just love that wrestling and uh, you know that's where I based my moves. And everyone would say like, oh, your moves are so like over the top and stuff. Well, at the time. Like now it's that's like an opening spot in some of these matches. Oh my gosh. And again, yeah. the the arms race. So it's like you gotta every we had this in St. Louis when we were doing GCW because we went from MRW with standard size guys and a few big guys and maybe one or two matches with like light heavyweights to when it became gateway, it was a lot of light heavyweights and a lot of jumping around. I mean, we had Matt Seidel who began uh, he ended up being Evan Bourne. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just a crazy high-flying guy, you know. And uh, um, what happened was is every month the the go-homes had to be bigger because the previous month you did this, so the next month you've got to do something better. And you're competing against the other wrestlers and yourself. And every week the guys who were doing the violent thing and the bloody thing had to get more violent and more bloody. The guys doing the high spots had to do a more death-defying high spot. And finally... I was in Milwaukee and I saw a match that was being run by a promoter named Dave Harrow. I don't yeah. know if you've ever heard of oh, him. Oh yeah, I know Dave. Yeah. yeah. I saw a match where a guy went home with an abdominal stretch, and at first I was infuriated, <laughs> and and then I also looked at it, 
and you know, they had worked the guy's ribs. They dropped him stomach first on the top rope. Then all of a sudden, the, the bell is rung. The guy's celebrating in the ring. He puts the guy back in the abdominal stretch. And then the bell's ringing frantically. And, like, the fans are standing for an abdominal stretch. And I'm like, what? Why would that this infuriate like, you? It, it did. It, when, it infuriated me when he first went home. But then as this is progressing and I'm seeing how over it is, I'm going, this guy's a genius. And I'm watching an abdominal stretch be so over. And the locker room clears to get this guy to release the abdominal stretch. And I went back to St. Louis and I told Ben about it. And Ben's like, uh, Ben Oliver, he ran Gateway Championship Wrestling. And he was also in MRW. And before that, he was at South Broadway. Mm-hmm. He was down in Texas. He was the tag team partner of One Man Gang at the Sportatorium for a summer. Anyway, so I told Ben, I go, dude, they went home with an abdominal stretch. And he just threw his head back and laughed. I go, we can make it work. Let's go out there and do that. So we did that. We stole the spot. We stole the ending and uh, did, did the thing. And we got to the post match, you know, like, you know, the farewell address, the state of the union on the, the last show or the previous show. And he says, Hey, we did that go home and it worked and it was over. We want everyone here to go back to a finisher is a finisher. I don't want anyone kicking out of a DDT ever again. Yeah. And he laid down the law. He said, we need to go back to submissions. You know, he goes, what are we going to do after this? I mean, you got to pull out a freaking gun and blow a guy's hat off in the ring for a go-home now? You're funny you're talking about this because we had the same talk when I was at WWE in the late 90s, early 2000s. I mean, I honestly thought at one point, when before Triple H really became in power, he was just like, we need to start grabbing holds, you know? Because, like, that, you know, yes, it had gotten to the Jeff Hardy spots were just higher and higher and higher, and, like, where do you go? Like you said, so you have to pull a gun and shoot somebody. So then, you know, and, and, and I they try that every once in a while. It's a lot of start and stop with that, where they try to make moves mean more. And then of course the next match is like a, you know, everything, throw everything against the wall. So it's, it doesn't really go all the time. And I think they're just worried that if they do that, and I know that's one of those things, like if you're a full fledged big company that is getting paid to put on a television show, that is a hard thing to just cold Turkey do and just start that right now in today's world, Mm -hmm. because you know, you'll lose half your audience. Maybe, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. And again, the submission thing, I ran into guys in the Indies who had these egos. And I'm like, dude, don't have an ego like that. Like, well, I'm not going to submit. Or, hey, man, uh, you know, I got 20 people here tonight. I want to go over. It's like, it's pro wrestling. You can tell the story in any kind of way to make a guy look strong or weak. And uh, when I was in it, um, Central, not Central States, when I was in uh, Metro Pro, I said, we should, I'm going to start submitting to holds. To get the fact over the guys submit to holds because there's other guys that, you know, it had to be like um, an interference finish. And I know that you probably had guys coming to you disputing the fact that you wanted to put a guy over clean in the center. Sure, of the ring. it's always politics here. Yeah, so I'm not like that. I, you know, they would tell me, you're going to go out there. Who do you got tonight? Derek Stone. Well, what do you want to go home with? The Tonga death grip. I'm like, great, <laughs> let's do that. Let's sell it. And we did it. And I, I, I put over uh, the late great Jack. Go Father Jack Masidal mm-hmm. with a chicken wing. I, I put him over. I submitted to a, a reverse chicken wing, the Bob Backlund hold. I submitted to that because you got to get submissions over. Or again, what are you going to do? You can like parachute out of a plane onto a guy, you know? Speaking, speaking of which, and I know you'll appreciate this, 
a buddy of mine is running a promotion out in San Diego. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They they did an outdoor show on one of the piers that overlooks the Pacific. Cool. And the final move in the match was he threw the guy off a 20-foot pier into the water. I would love that. Set set his arm on fire and did an elbow drop off the pier onto the guy. Oh, well, that's, I didn't know you were going to go there, but I, I love when you use like uh, gosh, at one time at Metro, we went like early on early days. It was like Tyler cook and SBC. And they went outside for a, a street fight because I had just remembered so fondly the, the old Al snow, hardcore Holly going out in the river and all that stuff. You know, I sure. always thought like, why wouldn't you do that? You know? Uh, so they, they went outside and did, they did spots out in the front of Turner Red. And uh, I always think it's great when you use, uh, you know, the geography around you to uh, to to take part in your match like that. So I would I would actually like that. I don't know about the burning elbow, but yeah, at least it's gonna, well, at least was, you know it's going to be extinguished that way. That was Dirty Ryan McDonald, by the way. He does like a clown gimmick. He wrestles for XPW, <laughs> and his promotion is called Fist. And uh, he's a friend of mine, but man, he's a lot to handle. He's got his demons, and he's. He's working on it. That's his big thing now. But uh, you have a lot of unique characters stuff, in but... your life because you're very open-minded and you're you're very like uh, you're like uh, you're the guy that would take in any homeless you know cat or dog. So you do that with humans as well. Uh, one of my favorite guys that you <laughs> that you brought to us. Well, I and I love the Magic Man. <laughs> and, and you brought him in, and uh, it couldn't have been a better fit for Metro Pro at the time. We've had him on this show, and people loved the interview with the Magic Man because he has got. You want to talk, and he's one of your your longtime friends. So you want to talk about yeah. a guy who, like, right place, right time, just persistence, and just being at the there all the time. You know, routine, whatever. I mean, he ended up having quite the career in Japan. And you know what, you guys, I listened to the interview, and I was laughing, but. The funniest story, and I'm going to tell it very quickly. The funniest story is about when he first got there, he was wrestling Jinzei Shinzaki, who in America was known as Hakushi. Famous for his matches with Bret Hart on Monday Night Tattoos all over him, yeah. Great worker, yeah. And um, he's wrestling, and the the fight spills out, and they end up in the balcony. And they're up in the balcony, and he picks him up and presses him over his head. And he thinks, in Magic Man, he's in the 30-foot balcony, and he thinks to himself, well, he's obviously going to tease this, and then I'm going to get out of it somehow. And then all of a sudden, he feels Shinzaki throwing him, and he's like, I guess, I, I guess I'm going to die. I'm going to die in Japan. This is how I die. And then as he throws him, they make eye contact, and the only words he's ever spoken to Magic Man, he goes, fans catch. And Magic Man flies over this balcony, and the fans caught him. But like two or three of them got like an elbow in the nose and a bloody mouth, and you know he he messed up a couple of the fans, but they did catch him. And to me, that's one of the most insane stories. And again, going back to Big Bad Ben, Big Bad Ben was telling us like, oh, when Magic gets back from Japan, he's going to be able to show us all these cool high tech moves. And I go, nah, <laughs> he's going to be able to show us how to properly ice down a bruise. He's going to be able to show us how to, you know, super glue shot a cut. Uh, he's getting his face kicked in over there, I guarantee you. And oh, man, I love the stories. Yeah. Oh, God. And while he was in Japan, he actually saw a UFO, and then he got interviewed on the George Nori Coast to Coast show. Oh, cool. Yes, I've listened to that many times in the middle of the night. Um, there you go. So Magic Man is one of those guys. And I always tell everybody, in any given situation, I am the least interesting guy in the room when I'm surrounded by wrestlers, musicians, or surfers. I am the least 
you know, I'm just surrounded by these people that are freaks and they have these great stories, you know? Oh yeah. And, uh, my life has been enhanced. I know some guys that were in independent wrestling who never made it to the bigs are bitter and angry because they had this one vision, this one expectation and this one outcome that if it didn't do that, it was going to be the worst thing that ever happened to them. Sure. And I went in this as a lark. I was just like, well, whatever happens. And then I had fun the entire time. And I never had more fun than after my window had closed, which was, I was supposed to go to Japan with Madman Pondo through Abdul the Butcher to work for Big Japan. Mm -hmm. And I had passport problems. I went to a 30 minute place. It took 30 days because I didn't have the upraised seal on my birth certificate. So in the meantime, they needed a guy. They booked Too Tough Tony, another Louisville guy, another Ian Rodden guy. And he went over there and uh, broke his leg, and they had to put a titanium rod in his leg. Mm. So I missed that trip. Yeah. And I was like, well, that was my one chance to get to Japan and maybe make a splash doing the chair assault, doing the moves I do, being willing to get rolled around in barbed wire. I'd, I could work some of these hardcore legends. Maybe that would have been something that would have elevated me slightly and maybe gotten me in. But at the, I, again, at the time, I wanted to go to the next level. I mean, like, where would I have gone? I mean, I'm too short, too small for WWE. And WCW had a guy, Hugh Morris. Yes. He basically did everything I did 10 times better than I did. He was 100 pounds heavier than me. Big guy. Three yeah. inches, four inches taller. So I'm like, well, why, why would you need me when you got a guy way better than me, like right there? Well, the, but does everything I do. But you're in the same category as I say, Jeremy Wyatt, who, when you guys, you know, were in wrestling at the beginning, you guys were obviously the small guys. But nowadays, yeah. you're at at least middle Average. of the road guys, and if not yeah, bigger, like it's just funny to to watch Jeremy Wyatt in a room of you know of Trevor Murdoch, Strider, Bull Schmidt, Derek Stone. He's a small guy. But nowadays, yeah. he's probably one of the taller guys in the in the locker room. It's just that's how that, much has changed. That is what I did like a lot about Metro Pro was you guys had enough of the tradition and the throwback stuff that it looked like what I believe wrestling should be. But then you also had enough of the guys. You, again, you had physique. You had guys with incredible physiques. You had guys that were incredible workers. You had big, tough guys. You You, you had like the entire spectrum. Mm-hmm. And I always think that when you go to see, you know, when you go to see a wrestling show, you got to have a little of everything. I you agree. You can't just have one thing all night, you know? I agree. I mean, like, look, I, I, I grew up being an ECW fan. So, of course, like, that was sort of my thing is like, hey, we'll have, we'll have a comedy spot, which you were in a lot of comedy spots with oh, the yeah. Iceman was in the, that role, too. There were some people like that. But then, that, but also, you could get into an angle with your chair salt. And that, now, chair salting is one of your specialties, and we could talk about that later. But yeah, you would have a little bit of everything. The only problem is, is that, you know, if you really want to get technical, and I don't like to get too technical in pro wrestling because I hear these people complain about, you know, the most intricate things. And I'm like, Let, let's face it, if you're going to start breaking wrestling down, no one would go with an Irish whip. Okay. Like, no one yeah, would. Ever. If you're screwing my girlfriend, I'm not going to go fight you in a wrestling ring. I'm probably going to try beat you up. It's outside your house or something, you know. So none of this is real. So when you start going so ticky tacky on it, my, my point of saying this is if I have like a, a six man scramble where, you know, I, I sort of like the high spotty match like one on a card I think is cool but then when you go to the main event and something that didn't take out a guy in the six-man scramble is now taking out the guy in the main event that's where the philosophy sort of you know butt heads but Mm -hmm. but I don't but you know I did enjoy something for everybody 
Yeah, and 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 again, that's why you have to have eight like agents, or at least a guy who's in the back who's talking it over with everybody. Sure. Because if you got a guy, it's it's like, look, the main event tonight is going to go over with this move. Nobody use this move in your your match. Don't even. I mean, don't even go home with it because we don't want to have the same, you know, the same go home. But for the love of God, you can't have a DDT in the second match of the night, two minutes into it, and the guy kicks out on one. Mm-hmm. If you're going to be going home in the main event for a championship belt, and you know, with the same move. But again, I when I saw the original Metro Pro was a TV taping that I went to. Yeah, I think it was in September of 2010. So you're talking about? So that was like basically our second show. The first show was at Memorial yes. Hall, and that was that was the first one at Turner. Okay. And my only concern as I was looking around was there's a bunch of guys here that have been doing this for a long time, and I didn't know you yet. I didn't know your experience level. And I remember having this talk with you, and I'm like, keep it, keep a kind of a tight hold on this locker room, and don't let guys go into business for themselves, you know? Sure. And I said, again, at every pre-show meeting where we'd all be sitting around, you would look me in the eye and go, and nobody hits unauthorized color tonight, <laughs> Pete. You know? Dude, you're the only person that's ever come up to me like, do you want me to hit the color tonight? Because I can't. Yeah. I mean, you are so willing to hit the color. You are such a Mick Foley, Terry Funk esque guy in that way. We, like, it's funny. You, that was we, it became a running joke. It. Yeah, yeah. It's it, and again, by that time, I mellowed out quite a bit. But the joke in St. Louis was that uh, you know you go back and look through my high school yearbooks and I'm bloody in every picture. And, <laughs> Yeah, my favorite There's picture my... of you is when uh, Santa Claus is giving you the cheese grater on your head. That's that's the yeah. annual great picture you put out for Christmas. Yes, that's that's. Uh, I am related to Santa Claus, so I was able to get the cheese grater. I did. I, if you look closely at the picture, my dog is sitting there doing nothing. He's not helping me at all. <laughs> what a horrible! Like, Come dog. on, nah, Wolfie. He, he was uh, he was heroic, man. <laughs> but um, yeah. So like, in in terms of uh, keeping a tight hold on the locker room. Man, if you got guys that are just going into business, because again, I used to do it when I would work for lesser promotions. I would get a call from a guy. He'd say, I want you to come in and do the chair assault. And I'd be like, all right. And am I I putting the guy over? Yeah, you're putting the guy over. I go, well, then I'm going to miss with the chair assault. So I want to kill the move. Makes sense. Anyway, uh, I would say, I got a couple guys I'm going to bring with me. Oh, I don't have any room on the card. Well, don't worry about it, you know. It's a quick opening match. Trust me on this. It's a great curtain jerker. I would bring in my guys that I was training. And literally like two months later, I would have already outlived my usefulness. And my arc is very short when I'm coming into an indie place. Sure. So anyway, I would come in like a house of fire, do the chair assault, maybe get a win over a guy to establish it, go up against their big heel or their big baby and then lose. And then where do you go with me? Well, see ya. You know, we've already seen it, you know. So you're out the door now. And uh, these guys would be the main event for six months. And again, that was like all the St. Louis guys that I'd kind of brought up with me and took on the road and everything like that. But uh, so we'd go to these small towns and I'd do the thing on the microphone where I book myself for the next month. You grab the microphone and then you just say, and if you want to, I'll see you right here next month. You know, and I yell at the promoter, are you going to make the match? You basically book yourself. I saw Bill Dundee do that. In Memphis. I'd be so pissed, but yes. Yeah, and like, the he did it to Terry Golden down there at that KAW. It was so funny. And then uh, 
the other thing was you come into these small towns and you get a slot and the guy's like, well, let's go out there and see what you do in the second match of the night. And you do a match that is nothing but high spots with no rest holds. And then you both hit the color and you brawl on the outside and you take a crazy bump off the ring post. And then like you basically outshine everybody because you've, you've killed everything on the, <laughs> you've scorched the earth at this point. You got sure. wrestlers in the back going, well, what the hell am I supposed to do after you do that? You know, and do they a, have? They, they don't even think that way anymore. They can't because it's a, it's it's a useless at this point to feel well, that. Well, way. Everyone's doing that in every match, but we, Ben and I used to do a spot where we would come in and we'd watch the crowd. You know, so there's things independent wrestlers do when they get to a show. You go, you first you check under the ring and you see if there's springs or there's jacks. You see if the ring is stable. One of the other things is you watch the people. So we were, you know, this little town in Godfrey, Illinois, and there was this guy, and he comes in, and he's like Norm from Cheers. Everyone is saying hello to the guy. He's wearing a, you know, trucker hat, yeah. big T-shirt, big 300-pound guy. So he says, you're the heel. Work the guy. Work the guy. Work the guy. And then at a certain point, I'll throw you out of the ring right in front of him. I'll come down and put you in an arm bar and grab you by the back of the head and stick your, your face right up by him and say, you apologize to him. And then, you know, no, I'm not going to apologize. I'll break your arm. And I'm sorry. And a huge pop. And then that guy goes back to work on Monday or whatever. And he's telling everyone, oh, you got to see this. This wrestler, they made him apologize to me and blah, blah, blah. And then next month, there's 30 more butts in the seats. You you bring up an excellent point with that because a lot of guys don't see it that way. A lot of guys are just focused on the match and they could care less about any crowd interaction. You know, a lot of people were uh, sort of anti that when I met them because they, you know, they've just sort of been trained. You know, there's a certain way of training someone to just like don't let them phase you at all. You know, you have to sort of pretend like you're in front of 30,000, not 30, you know, or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, but Metro Pro was, uh, and I think the unique, one of the parts of it being unique was that we had uh much like you know straw hat guy in ecw we had our like you know 20 people that were always there like every indie did at the time you know like strong indie had you know even though back in the old days the old murdy and gertie height in the front row of uh, central states they always remember these old two little old ladies twins that would be at these matches and everyone remembers them and so like at metro you had you know um you had uh, Santa Claus. You know, there's a guy we referred to as Santa Claus. We Raiders fan. We had uh, Medea and her son. Who by well, the Medea? Yeah, Medea. If you remember, I was doing some mic smack as the pseudo commissioner. I walked right out and sat down next to her, <laughs> and I was saying, "Hey, what would you think of me making Jeremy Wyatt do this and Jeremy Wyatt do that?" Oh, and then I would put the microphone by her mouth, and it was just unintelligible. It was just her screaming like she always did, but. You know what was interesting yeah, is that she once said that her son, I believe she claimed that her son was Bob Geigel's son. Good and, Lord. And I was like, man, Bob Geigel really offered nothing in the DNA of this man because he is darker than you. And, you know, I don't yes. know how that, I don't know how that's possible. But anyway, uh, I think, I don't know if he really believes that and goes around and says that or what. But I guess the point well, Todd is. Todd the Bod. Don't forget Todd the <laughs> Bod. Yes. Yeah. Rhino, he would definitely have uh, his, his shopping cart filled with things. Uh, there, Look, Retro Rick. There, there was, a, it was a numerous <laughs> amount of people there that were there all the time that had their own Crusher, sort of. Crusher, Thomas. The, yeah. The Crushers. Yeah. They had the, uh, the, the Crusher. They had their own little gimmicks there, and it was just it made it fun, you know. I mean, it, it did because you would they were as much of a part of the show as that. And I don't think a lot of the wrestlers sort of understood. No, sort of but when I that. when I used to show up to Metro Pro, and there would be 
150 people outside in a line an hour before the doors opened. And I was looking at a Dan Walsh or the, the guy that became uh, the alternative Brandon Gallagher, who was pumpkin. He was just a ref at the time. Mm-hmm. Magic man. He knew he, we'd see it. And I, I turn to those guys and I'd say, look at all those people, dude. Like those people are so into this. The last thing on earth I want to do is disappoint someone who's paying their hard earned money and standing outside and committing to this. It's because again, that every single person that sits in every single chair, they've either got a boss, they got something happening at work, they got a financial problem, they got a relative who's sick, they got something mm-hmm. that is bugging them and dragging them down. And then for two, two and a half, three hours, they get to forget about that and go on this ride. And it's super cathartic for them. And it's really good for society. And it's really, it's, it's, it heals everyone when you go on, a, on that ride and you do the wrestling thing and everyone gets to interact. It's, it's like this weird interactive theater that we do. It's like, you know, and again, I get it. A lot of people get it. You go there, you yell for the babies, you know, you scream at the heels or vice versa, whatever your, your thing is. And, you know, you, you walk out of there feeling better than when you walked in. Sure. And, and then you want to come back next month and then it starts all over again. And that's the whole idea. But a lot of guys get tunnel vision, you know? And then the other thing is a lot of guys, there's so much fun that's happening and it's like, they're oblivious to the fun that's going on around them. I'm like, Oh my God, man. Like those, those post parties at Rob Shamberg's loft, <laughs> always a good time. You know, Legendary. Some of them. Yes. I, I actually evacuated his art gallery twice though, by using the bathroom. Oh yeah. I heard about Shamberger buddy, buy some renews it, get a vent, at least leave some matches in there. Dude, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, like, yeah, well, of course, we talked about. I brought this up to Magic Man, but one of the one of the highlights there was when uh, Christopher Daniels went into the bathroom <laughs> and saw the picture of Magic Man. And he came out with sure. the picture in his hand and said, "You know, Magic Man, were you there that night?" No, I wasn't. <laughs> but that is exactly the kind of thing, the, the random thing with Magic Man, where some guy that's like in wrestling will know Magic Man and know way too many details about him. Oh yeah. And it's absolutely hilarious. Like, oh, yeah, there was that one time he wrestled Hayabusa. And then that was the time Hayabusa made that reptilian noise and blah, blah. And, like, they, they have, like, the entire match memorized. And I'm like, <laughs> Magic Man, uh, I, I, I just, again, like, accidental tourist, man. He just was there and, like, was was put in. Like, and he's he's like you. He's, he's there to have fun. He's there to enjoy himself. He's not there for some kind of tunnel vision, like you say. It was so interesting. I think that was the most interesting thing about being a promoter. And positive and negative is, like, everyone sort of had their own uh, mission with being at these shows. Some are just like, you're a guy I would classify as, you're just enjoying yourself. You uh, either came to terms with the fact that you're not going to be Hulk Hogan or that you just never really had that kind of expectation anyway and you just wanted to have fun. But then you had the other ones that had like, hey, I'm doing this because I'm going to be the rock one day and you know, I'm not, no screwing around, I'm not goofing around. You know, and I, I can understand both sides of it, but to be, as a promoter, I was always more, uh, I felt guilty about the guys that were going to be the rock in their mind because i'm like you know the chance even if you're great the chances of that are very slim so yes enjoy the ride as you would say and um you know some didn't yeah and, and again i tried to pull guys aside and say like hey man you know look what we get to do you know 99.9 percent of the population on planet earth well not not 
it's not 99.9 anymore now that there's an indie in every single city but you know back in the day there was a limited group of people that got to get in a pro wrestling ring and sure. be in this business and be in this fraternity and i'm like god it's it's like surfing a huge wave at a spot and there's no one there or it's like playing in a band in front of 500 people that know every word of every song you wrote it's like there's a special feeling you get that we get to have that other people don't get to have and there's another kind of pro wrestler too that i kind of i always had my hackles up in my radar for the guy that comes into this expecting everything to be handed to them on a silver platter and when it isn't they flip out and they get bitter and weird yeah it's like yo man everyone on this card has got a role you know it's like sometimes you're the lead singer in the band and sometimes you're just the bass player i'm just the bass player man i'm not not even the bass player half time i'm just the roadie i just set up the amp we're all here for a specific purpose on this night on this card do your role to the best of your ability and then when it's over we move on to the next city so again i think back in the days of the territories if i had been born a little younger or gotten into it a bit earlier I'd have been fine being one of those guys that wasn't, you know, like a, I'd be a mid-card guy, you know? Sure. I think I would have been fine with that. What are you going to do tonight? Oh, I got to go out and put over, you know, Ricky Morton, or I got to go out there and put over Terry Taylor, or I got to go out there and I'd have been fine with all that. Like, those guys are the guys putting the butts in the seats. I could have been like one of the, what is the Mulkey brothers? Or, sure. Or, you were talking about the Kansas City thing. My first manager was a guy named Ricky James. His uncle is Rick McCord. Okay, from yeah. from Kansas City Wrestling. He was Rick McCord was just at the Waterloo um, Hall of Fame get together this past weekend, and Gil or Gil Rogers of NWL fame. He um, oh, yeah. he was talking with him and trying to get him hooked up so we can interview him for uh, Central States because he he was all over Kansas City and St. Louis back in the day. Yes, and uh, tragically, R- Ricky passed away in a car accident, but. Uh, you know, that was a strange situation where Ricky had sworn. You, you couldn't use swear words at South Broadway. Mm. And they brought in Magic Man. Without telling Magic Man, they were going to fire Ricky. And Ricky drove all the way from Kansas City to St. Louis and walked in only to get fired and told to turn around and drive four hours home mm. right in front of Magic Man, who at the, at the moment pulled me aside and said, I just enabled him to fire Ricky. I'm like, I, I don't know, I guess. And he, He's like, I'm not good with this. I'm walking out. And I had to talk Magic Man into not leaving because he was so upset that they fired Ricky. Show of character of Magic Man. And Magic Man said, why don't they keep him, dude? We could do a manager versus manager thing, you know? And I had the idea to have Magic Man and Ricky both manage me and contradict each other. Like I'd get up in the ring (laughs) and I'd grab a headlock and one, one would yell, grab a headlock. And then the other guy would be like, you know, pin him. And I'd be like, confused as you know, they'd be giving me contradicting orders and then i would turn my back on my opponent and get rolled up for you know for an easy three count and i'd be mad at both of them and then they, they that could eventually turn into a few there's so many ways you could go with it of course but the promoter just turned around and went you're fired get out I'm, oh my god <laughs> yeah that's how it works a lot of times unfortunately in the old indie scene but uh when you yeah. when, i do want to like uh, before we finish up with some metro pro stuff i did want to like in Kansas City, a lot of people my age or younger have no idea about Gateways uh, Championship Wrestling, and that was uh, one of those things when I was starting Metro Pro and I was looking at the the scene and just sort of what was going on in the Midwest. That was a big one to look at because it was 
it was uh, sort of emulating ECW in some ways, but uh, and they had their adult only shows, and I would see it, it just had a real rabid sort of cult like fan base. And what? Just, yeah. How can you? Uh, what What was it like being there? That was, uh, you know, the vision of Big Bad Ben, who said, "I want you know." This was '99, and MRW had just folded, and he said, "I want to base a promotion on 1995 era ECW." where you had Benoit and you had the Malenko Guerrero classic, but you also had the hardcore. Yeah. And he rented out of an old firehouse, painted the walls black, threw a ring in there, set it up for TV. Once a month, we do the, uh, the adults effing only shows cult like following again, like the fans were part of it. Fans had ownership of it a bit. And, you know, we would bring in Rob Van Dam, Sandman, two cold Scorpio, Cool. Uh, Balls Mahoney. Um, oh, God. Kid Cash. Blue Meanie. I mean, there was a lot of guys that came in from ECW. Yeah. And we would have, like, you know, these really good. I mean, you could go to a GCW show and the main event would be Rob Van Dam versus Kid Cash, which you'd never see in ECW. So it was, it was really good that Ben had that pipeline with the ECW guys. And then we had our local guys, and one of the damnedest things I've ever seen in my entire life, there was a match going on, and uh, the Irish luchador, Billy McNeil, his partner took a ladder, and the, they had security guys in the upstairs that kind of kept a hold of it. The ladder went over the top of the ring post, the skinny end of the ladder, the top of the ladder, and then the wide part of the ladder was up on the balcony, and he took a children's toboggan. No, it was a steel chair. He took a steel chair and he slid down the damn ladder and then jumped off at the last second and did like some kind of shoulder block thing into the ring. Oh, wow. Just an insane move that you would never see at like South Broadway or anything like sure, that. You know? Sure, sure. But again, a lot of blood, a lot of violence in this old firehouse, walls painted black, very underground, very seamy, very sleazy feeling. It had that whole dirty, grimy, undergroundy. I love that. I love that yeah. is what that is what uh, that's what I loved about ECW. That's what I loved about, and that's why I hated versions of like Ring of Honor when they first started going HD net or whatever. I'm like, this is just too clean. Like I just yeah. wrestling, I I loved a little bit more. I loved gritty, and I understand HD yes. sort of kills that, but uh, <laughs> that's what I liked about it. I still remember they at one point Ben brought in this uh, this X rated actress that had been an XPW manager named Christy Mist. Okay. But, you know, Ben couldn't speak the English language whatsoever, so he referred to her as Crispy Mints. And, uh, you know, it was just the funniest damn thing. We had, you know, and Strider was in there. Of course. We, we had uh, Brett Young, who I think is one of the greatest workers. Brett Young is one of those guys, to me, that kind of got it, you know? Oh, yeah. I love Brett Young. Number one Brett there. Young, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the whole Mustache Mafia thing, when he was teaming up with uh, Ryan Drago, yep. who – who ended up being Simon Gotch and then peeled back Enzo Amore's face in the ring or whatever. And that's the only contact I have with like the modern WWE is when I hear a friend of mine is in there and he either failed a drug test or he got fired or he peeled some dude's face half off on the lower rope or whatever. We were all friends with ACH, you know, he's another one. That... ACH was the first time I saw him. Cause again, my experience with not being able to go to Japan on short notice, mm -hmm. Remember the first time we were in the back, we were talking to him, and I said, get your passport and get it up to date immediately because you will get offers. You know? And then uh, 
to see him succeed and then to see it end in the bizarre way that it ended it's i have no idea what happened there that I remember hearing it was a T-shirt, and there was controversy, and I'm just like, there was, uh, but then it's, it quickly got out of a hand after that, and like, uh, I hope he's doing well now because I, ACA, there was a time ACH and Jeremy or Jeremy White, if I had one of those on a card, that's the rest was just gravy, you know, because that, those guys put on such great matches, and that was like your headline main event. That that's the Vince McMahon philosophy. As long as we have the main event is very good. You know, Vince could care less what's really on the rest of the card. That's how it was in the early 2000s. So, um, you know, that's how it was with ACH or, or Wyatt. You have a good match with one of those guys. They're either against each other or separate, whatever. And that's all I needed. And ACH was, you know, an up-and-coming guy, and he was incredible. You know, and well, was, you guys, that was the thing about Metro Pro, and I've, I've, I always told the people who I brought in, the younger people from St. Louis who I'd ride with, I'd say, look, you don't get a hot crowd. You don't get full, a full house at many of these independent shows, you're going to get a full house tonight and they're going to be hot. That was the thing with GCWs. You, you'd pack 125 people into a garage basically. And they would be screaming their heads off. And it was a hot crowd and they were pretty smart. Your people were more going along with the flow of the show. But again, it's a hot crowd. You're inspired. You don't want to let the people down. You want to take that extra bump for them. That's another good thing. When I came up at South Broadway, I would listen in the locker room to the, the veterans up there talking about how little they plan to do in the ring. Never heard any of that crap at Metro Pro. Guys were always wanting to go out there and bust their ass and do as much as possible. The Strider-Adam Pierce match, one of the best damn matches I've ever seen. You know, and Dingo came in and did a couple great matches. He did, yeah. And Wyatt, you could just put your money on Wyatt having a great match. And, uh, you know, there was just a lot of guys out there that were running around doing everything they could possibly do and just busting their tail in the ring. And that just leads to more competition and more excellence and more of a a good product. Some, You know, what are we doing at this point? We want to be involved with something we can be proud of. You're only as good as the worst match on the card. So I I quickly found out that... being a promoter of independent wrestling and sort of like my background going into that, which, you know, independent wrestling was brand new to me coming off WWF. It was a whole new world. Uh, of course I had some respect because of my background, but like, I didn't know what I was doing when I first got into it. So, um, dude, I didn't even know your background for like the first year. No, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause I don't go around talking about it. Cause I'm like, yeah, I, that's yeah. just not really my style. No, but, I just immediately liked you and I went, that's the boss. And I was fine. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. I'm glad you did. But the, the, uh, it was, it was just interesting to sort of You know, I I guess my point of talking about being a promoter in it was that when you get into it, most promoters either want to be part of the show, they're doing it to Uh. get a little cred, they're doing it to, I don't know, thinking they're going to make lots of money. I I don't know. I went into it with none of that. I went into it just sort of because I wanted to make a TV show, really, is how it happened. And it ended up working out because of that. Um, And I think a lot of these indies and, and promoters take themselves way too seriously. And that's why I wanted to have guys like you come in because you and, gosh, so many guys that, that I had on there were just um, recognized it, appreciated it, wanted to do well, and were open to anything. And that's all I really wanted to do, really. It was, it wasn't, yeah. It's not really recreating the wheel here. And, again, you did it backwards. You said in a previous podcast you started at WWE and you went to being an independent promoter. So. I think it's better that way <laughs> because it, they're both worlds are so different. It's, it's not even – you can't even compare them. So it's uh, – you know, I um, – 
unfortunately, you do, you just need a ring and in some states a promoter's license and a bond to become a, a quote unquote wrestling uh, executive. You know, so well, from my point of view, it was super refreshing to have a promoter that wasn't going to put himself over for the heavyweight title for some belt that looked like it was made out of a weightlifting belt and a bunch of discarded beer cans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and then pay the boys in hot dogs. I was just like, this guy gets it. This guy's on the level. This is going to work. It's going to be fine. And look at this. Look at the talent in this room. Trevor Murdoch and Steve Fender and Jeremy Wyatt Strider. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, and again, if I'm the worst guy on the card, it's a good – that's – I don't want to be the best wrestler on the card. I want to be the, the drizzling shits. I want to be the worst guy in the card because then at least I'm part of a good winning thing, you know? No, it was – and you guys, you were – you you brought in uh, – you were part of some memorable angles. You brought in Mischief, and we had an intergender match before those became the the rage. Uh 30 was it 30,000 views on the internet? Now? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, anytime you put, I don't know if you know this, Pete, but anytime you put a female wrestler in a match, it somehow does way better than just two dudes. Well, I was going to say it was 29,500 views for her and 500 for me and like the, the geeks that follow me and stuff. So. At the NWL, um, we were like, Oh, let, let, we want a match with a lot of hits. Let's put Lucy versus Marty Bell in a match, and sure. we'll see how that does. And then I think it was then it was Marty versus uh, Mia Yim, and like all these were like these high rate. You know, you get all these views, which yep. I was going to bring up. But I didn't know if you knew this or not, but you were the only guy that went to Shimmer that wasn't there just to see the ladies because they've never seen one before. So that was <laughs> that was an interesting stat I read. Uh, and again, man, I went to Shimmer, and I, I took a couple friends with me, and I was like. Well, that that right there, that's Kana, and she is now in WWD, WWE as Asuka. Yep. And they had, like, um, Hiroyo Matsumoto and, uh, oh, God, it's um, the guy from mm, the guy from Michinoku Pro's uh, Ayako Hamada. They had a bunch of these great Japanese workers who are basically the superstars of WWE today. Sure. And I was there watching them, you know, at this grueling – seven-hour uh, TV taping. A, another funny one. This is a good one. Maybe this will be the parting shot, but uh, Miss Natural had a double-shot weekend. She had a Milwaukee gig and then Shimmer. So it's triple shot. So she had two days in Chicago, Friday night in uh, Milwaukee. So she slept over at my house up here in Milwaukee, and then I drove her down to the Shimmer show, but I couldn't stay. So I was dropping her off. And out in the parking lot was Melanie Cruz, who's this giant, unbelievably great worker who usually wrestles guys because she's like six feet tall. Yeah, yeah. And Soraya Knight, who is the mother of WWE worker. Like, what is uh, what she, was her she's name? Paige. Paige. Yeah. So anyway, I get out and I grab her bags and I walk around the side of the car and I hand her the bag and I give her a hug. And Soraya Knight's smoking a cigarette and she goes, "Hey, who's the he rat?" <laughs> I started cracking up, man. I'm like, oh my god, that's what I've devolved into. I'm like, have a good time with the show, natural. You know, give me a call later, and you know, that's I'm with Boogie and out of there. But yeah, so Soraya sure Miss Natural me laughed her ass off on that one. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, she was. She had to go to therapy for PTSD after like taking a shower in my bathtub because I got mold in my bathtub, and she's a clean freak. Oh man, why would you bring that up? <laughs> she was horrified by my house. It was pretty funny, man. <laughs> well, you know, one of my favorite spots that 
you know, that lives in my brain all the time is because there's a great photograph of it was when you were involved in the angle with Stephen J. Gerthy and you, but then the commission who, by the way, I loved booking the commission, uh, a, they were super over and B it just pissed off some people that did not think they should be booked so hard, even though they were super over, you know, which you yeah. see all the time in independent wrestling. Look, they don't look like muscle head, like right off a men's fitness magazine. Why are you promoting them? You know, why are you pushing them? And well, because have you heard the crowd? They sort of, they yeah. sort of are with them. But anyway, uh, but in the end of one of those matches, of course, and you had asked before, like a good guy, sure. but uh, can I use the thumbtacks? <laughs> and like you did your patented, uh, let's grind Pete Madden's forehead into a pile of Crown <laughs> Royal uh, bag, you know, thumbtacks on the apron of the ring. And man, that that sticks in my head. And I know that's just a Tuesday for you, it's but stuck that in was, my head too, bro. It did physically, <laughs> literally. Like, <laughs> but uh, I know it's just a normal day for you. But that was uh, that was a memorable moment. Well, you know, and again, I really wish I'd been there when you brought in Jim Cornette because oh, Cornette, yeah. there's if he'd have seen me go out there and work a technical match, which I can do, I'm sure Cornette would have been like, hey, that guy's pretty good or, you know, whatever. You'd have been good back in the day. And again, my top five, Bobby Eaton is in my top five, always has been, mm-hmm. primarily for the bump he took when he would take back body drops on cement. Oh, okay. So anyway, I was always a Bobby Eaton fan. I mean, the cement bump drew me in, but then everything else, including just the way he'd throw a punch, just loved Bobby Eaton. Sure. But Cornette always talks about like, oh, you guys that do this stuff are all a bunch of marks. It's like, hey, Jim, everything I did that was hardcore, like even taking the thumbtacks in the face, there was a system. So like by Tuesday, you, you avoid washing it. You get it clean right after you take the tacks out. You avoid washing it. And then by like Wednesday, it's starting to get really itchy and really dry. And then by Thursday, you take a washcloth in the shower and you wipe it off and you got fresh skin. I said, it's a work. I wouldn't have done it if it was real. It's like the staple gun. It's a work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The barbed wire. It's a work. Everything I did was a work. The mousetraps. It's a work. But who's the, who's the guy that fell out of a 20-foot scaffold and legit broke his damn leg? It's you, Cornette. I wish I had just, man, I was so pissed that I wasn't able to confront him on that one. But, I don't know uh, how that would have gone. I, I oh, he'd have killed me. <laughs> he he'd have motherfucked me up one one end down the other. You can bleep that out if it's, you don't want that on your. No, 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 it's fine. It's, <laughs> I'm sure Cornette would have dressed me down. And again, he's Jim freaking Cornette, and I'm just Pete Madden. But. I'm so happy we brought him in before he stopped doing all indie dates. He doesn't do them anymore. So uh, it was he's it was, gold though on the rate on the podcast. Oh yeah, he, no, he's awesome. I love his podcast. Yeah. Oh. He's, He's uh he he does it right. I think most people sort of believe in what he says more than uh, the current day product. But you know what? Like, there's a lot of there's just it's hard not to have a majority of people that like what he says because he was big in the biggest era of wrestling ever in terms of uh, you know modern day. Not not when people mm-hmm. would go to a hundred thousand people to watch you know uh, hack and schmidt. And or again, I always go back to the hot crowd when Midnight Express was going up against uh, the Rock and Roll hottest of heat you could possibly imagine i mean like the crowds were out of their freaking minds and to me that's what wrestling ought to be sure i mean like you saw 
I, it was funny. I, speaking of Cornette, he was talking about Don Callis getting uh, sort of attacked down in Mexico this past week by a fan uh, yeah, when he was doing yeah. Triple Mania. And, you know, nowadays that's looked at as, you know, oh, this is horrible. You know, this this is just how much everything has changed, you know. like And that was something that back in the day, of course, no one wants to get attacked or stuck by a hat pin or whatever. But, uh, you know, that was considered doing your job. <laughs> when, I, when I started at South Broadway, there was two guys that were heels that had wounds on them from people coming out and attacking them. And then the craziest one was, some lady brought poison ivy in a, in a, la- a sandwich bag. Seriously? She brought poison ivy. It's like, think about it. You're not going to be able to get that on the wrestler without getting it on yourself, too. You know? But uh, John Blackheart, who, whose real name's Jeff Foster, he trained me. Great guy. He was trained by Gary Jackson. St. Louis legend Gary Jackson. Sure. Great guy. Um, and Giant Assassin. And Giant Assassin had gotten spit on and stabbed and physically attacked. And he was old school, man. He always had his one eye on the crowd because he would say stuff and people would come out of the crowd at him. So, yeah, when I started, there was still that heat level. Yeah. And then everyone had started becoming like a wink and a nod. Sure. You know. Which you can work with that, but, you know. I got one more. I'm going to try to cram this in. Nikki Strychnine. Hilarious, right? So this guy in St. Louis... He is the toxic titan, the poison prince, the Ayatollah of Ebola from the toxic waste dumps of New Jersey, right? Mm -hmm. His entire goal in wrestling was to be the most hated heel. And he would just rip on the fans constantly, right? Yeah. But as a lot of charismatic heels will do, people started to like him. And he decided, I can't have people liking me. This is unacceptable. So how do you go from being the badass in the jacket with the skull on it with the, you know, the green face and the crown of barbed wire thorns spewing hate. How do you go from that to being hated again? If you got people, if you're over. So what he did was he came out to the ring in like velvet pants and a white frilly shirt reciting poetry. And he changed his name to Nicodemus Raven dark from the coffee houses of New Jersey. And he did a whole storyline where mischief breaks up with him, and it shatters his psyche and then he starts writing her sappy poetry to try to win her back. And she's like, you're not a man anymore. And it was just, and then everyone hated him again. And he was happy as a clam. Cause that's what makes him tick, you know? Yeah, sure. Sure. Hey, look, and that's uh, what you had to do. I mean, that, that was, it was sort of like, uh, you have to be the prim and proper guy to get heat. And nowadays, you know, like right to censor, you know, or something like that, where the people have great to, gimmick. Yeah, I, it was for, I mean, I don't think it got enough credit for what it was really trying to do. Cause it was, it was a shoot really, but, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of that it's the good guy, you know, the Bob Backlands of the world would be the heels now, which is, that's yes. how it's changed. You know, yes, but, the corny guy, you know. Oh yeah, the guy that's uh, wants to be Hulk Hogan of the '80s would be a heel. You know, I mean that's just sort of Cena has Cena had a little bit of residual of that. You know, where people hated Cena even though he was like the the ultimate good guy, but it was like he, he we're is. sick of this. You know, but yeah. Uh, and Kurt Angle came in that way. I remember when Kurt Angle came in and everyone thought he was going to get a hero's welcome, but usually in wrestling, people and you know fans in wrestling don't necessarily like the guy that's a, an incredible athlete that has a great, like uh, on, at least on paper, perfect life, you know, and a tough mm-hmm. guy that can do whatever he wants. So then you start playing up the fact that he uh, drinks milk and you know has the three he, eyes. You know? so, cannot be too good looking if you're a heel, and that's what killed a lot of guys. If you look at the guys who were so over as baby faces back in the day, it's like Bruno San Martino. 
it was an ethnic guy. He's sure. a little bit, you know, he, he doesn't have classic good guy looks. Uh, or Verengania, you know, by me, the crusher up by me. Uh, you know, you could you could sell that to the, the Joe Punch Clock guys, but uh, you got a guy that's a little bit too good looking, like a Terry Taylor. He's going to have a hard time being over with anything but the young female. Sure. And you know, that's that's just. And again, there's always going to be a spot for the the good looking guy that the chicks go crazy for. The Von Ericks had armies of women showing up for them. The rock and roll. To a certain extent, Midnight Express, and Cornette always says it too, the ring rats that go after the heels are the more twisted, bizarre ones. So <laughs> That's why know. he loved being a heel. Yeah, That's right. He said that well, it dovetails nicely with my tastes, you know. <laughs> Cornette. I don't know if Cornette, depending on what match of mine he'd have seen, he either would have hated me and thought I was the shits or he thought I was pretty good when I was doing a more straight-laced thing, you know. Yeah, um, gosh. I You know, I think some of your all-time greatest hits – that I've seen pictures of on the internet. I'm pretty sure he probably hate you. But, he probably uh, hate me. But, but if he saw the match I worked with Wyatt when we were out in uh, Manhattan. Sure. Or was it Lawrence? It was, we're, we're, it was Lawrence. It was, it was Lawrence. Lawrence. Oh, yeah. It smells like hippie sweat and desperation. Yeah, it was that. That's Mass Street in general. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Oh, my God. No, but no, you're right. No, I'm not saying. The, the problem is, like, when you would do crazy spots back in the day, it was usually built up to that, not just every show out of the blue yeah. just for no reason but you know that that's sort of lost in translation now because people do it for no reason now and so if you did that at all then you're going to be a heel to him but um but anyway i uh dude you were you were always like a a fun always in a good mood great dude to bring in i'm so happy that i did and you know we become friends i love chatting with you all the time just about wrestling or something stupid that we both think about from back in the day or you're doing your iron chic impression or whatever oh my god um you know i i was really happy to have you in and i appreciate you doing this today well it was the most fun i ever had i swear to god man there's like the end of my run you know, the, the gateway thing was fun in a different way. Sure. And then, uh, you know, getting with you guys at the tail end of my thing, I just, it was a blessing. And again, man, at some point I'm going to come out and hang out with you and watch Tom Wolpat singing country tunes out at your place. Of course. Of course. It's Tom Wolpat, be a good friend of mine. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's Wisconsin Royal. Awesome from Wisconsin. I, I like Wisconsin guys. I don't know what to tell you. There you go. But, uh, but Pete, thank you for joining me. And I will, uh, yes, we will talk soon again. Very cool. Thanks. All right, welcome back to the worst territory in the world. What a great interview with the human wrecking, human wrecking ball, right? I was about to say human wrecking machine because we were talking about ECW. Rhino? (laughs) Or Taz? Yeah, I kind of got all all of them mixed up. Uh, But Pete Madden, what a great interview. Uh, I think it's those types of interviews that really make this podcast different is because if you love pro wrestling, you know, last week's interview, this week's interview, you hear a lot of different stories um, because you guys have been around. So you hear a lot of different stories from the uh, perspective of like a Midwest kind of legend, you know what I mean? And, and, and he did open the doors a lot for you and Metro pro. So what, what a great interview. I would always say that, like, I would always rather have, I know this is goes beyond what people would think initially, but like, I would always rather have an interview with someone like Pete Madden or Bullschmidt or someone like that than I would, uh, even like, 
in a way like Stone Cold or something or The Rock or whatever, because those guys are so big and they're at the top of the mountain and they only see it's like the Hulk Hogan interviews. I don't care what Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair have to say. I would much rather listen to a guy that was there the entire time. I always said Dr. Tom Pritchard would have more would have better stories than Hulk Hogan or someone like that because he was in the middle of it all. He wasn't treated like a superstar King. He was like, he got to see the full gamut of everything going on. And that's how like a, that's how these guys on the Indies, like Bull Schmidt, you know, great stories with Harley, Pete Madden, great stories. Uh, you know, when he tells a story, told a story about his dad getting hurt by the crusher in, in football, you know, it's like, these are things that, um, they have a different perspective than someone that was like at the top of the mountain. And I think those are, you know, sometimes the best stories because you're not going to get the top guys. They were, they were being treated like top guys, you know? And so that's a whole different elite world, but, um, but yeah, it was, uh, I, I love Pete Madden. I could talk with him for hours when he calls, we usually do talk for hours and my wife's like, what the hell are you doing? But we, uh, <laughs> we like to reminisce a lot. Yeah. My wife's still uh, a chill, still gets up her spine every time she hears the Voxer thing go off because of how much I was on Voxer back in the day. And now she's just like, Oh God, who is it? Cause she knows it's wrestling related and she knows it could lead into a conversation that lasts hours and hours and hours. Yeah. So yeah, my wife was real pissed about Voxer and a lot of people don't know what Voxer is out there. Voxer is a, an app that only wrestling people use. <laughs> yeah. I like every, like uh, Marty Bell gives me crap. She calls me grandpa. Cause I use that app like hoodie. Like I think he only has the app because I talked to him on there. Uh, I don't know. It just started during NWL. I didn't know what Voxer was, but then everyone had it. And it's just an easy way to sort of walkie talkie leave yeah. voice recordings for someone as opposed to calling or texting everything, which I hate texting. So me too. Um, so my I had to turn all notifications off. My wife was getting pissed and I had to turn them off. So I just started to see them pop up. I do not have that beep, beep, beep. I don't do that. I don't do that anymore. So yeah. <laughs> all right, Chris. Well, we're going to wrap it up here. But before we do, We're not going to do Chris on the hot seat today. We're not going to do Chris Mount Rushmore. We're not going to do Chris watches. Chris, what are we going to do today? Well, Gabe, I've been threatening to do this for a while. And I don't (laughs) know. I used to do a, uh, a trivia show in Kansas city called bragging rights. And we would take like my panel of sports insiders, which are like anchors and other producers and stuff at my channel. And we would go head to head with a company, in the uh in the neighbor in the area in Kansas City like somebody's you know like an accounting firm I would have four guys and it was like very popular but I love trivia and uh since you're a trivia wrestling nerd to a degree yes uh, I wanted to start it I just wanted to throw out some trivia questions okay. and see how you answer these uh these there's these are 15 they're not multiple choice so I'll just okay. throw out the questions okay they're from all walks of wrestling life and you can okay. tell me and I will tally up how you do. Okay. Okay. Sounds go. good. Now, before we get started, is it true that NWL was supposed to have a game show? Good. Anyways, <laughs> I think Philip Evans was once promised uh, to be the host of a trivia show by Major Basin at one point, but and, that trivia show never came off the ground. And if he's listening to this right now, he is he'll he hates me. Period, which is hilarious. But he's he's probably going to be like, son of a game, stupid son of a bitch. Anyways. All well, right. You are a stupid son of a bitch. I am that, a stupid son of a because of that. But, uh, <laughs> All right, go ahead. But, okay, here we go. 15 questions, Gabe. Here we go. Number one, Harley okay. Race was both the first and last person to hold what regional championship? 
and this is easy because it's it's close to home here. So well, and, uh, first of all, I want to let you know I will not Google and or look up anything. Thank uh, God. These You're questions. not going to cheat. Thanks. I'm not a cheater. Um, I am going to so repeat the question one more time. So who uh, Harley Race was both the first and last person to hold this regional championship. He won it first in March of '72 over Pac Sung. And then he won it six more times before beating Jerry Blackwell for his seventh title in August of 1985. And losing it to Ric Flair right here in Kansas City, Missouri, the NWA championship. No, this it's a regional championship. What? So it is NWA, but it's a regional championship. Oh, uh, NWA Central States. Missouri State oh, Heavyweight geez. Championship. All right. Okay. Strike. All uh, right. Well, that's not easy, really. I, it's easy because I was... I always see these things with him but because he's around here. But if you're not from here, you wouldn't see it as much. Okay. Back when Stone Cold Steve Austin was merely stunning, which wrestler ended his second WCW United States heavyweight title reign? Ooh. It happened in September of 1994. Now it's either going to be – it's either going to be Ricky Steamboat or Dustin Rhodes – and well, I'm gonna... here's it here. I'm going to give you a little hint. It says okay. he was awarded his second U.S. heavyweight title on September 18th, 1994, when the injured Ricky Steamboat couldn't compete, but he lost it that same night to this person who was in turn defeated by Big Van Vader a little over three months later. It's a guy that has been booked at Metro Pro in the past. Hold on, hold on. At a baseball on. show. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, he's still alive and still doing indie dates oh my god that's crazy wait hold on <laughs> these are tough yeah well no um let's see here was it duggan Axaw jim duggan wow okay but you led Good me job. to that one but i'll uh, still whatever count. i'll, I'll still that's count. not easy okay the recently uh well the deceased giant baba Traded the NWA World Heavyweight title twice with Harley Race in 1979 and 1980. Who did Giant Baba beat to win the title the first time? This happened in December of 1974 in Japan. He lost the title back to the same person in Tokyo a week later. Who is Terry um, Funk? Who is Jack Briscoe? That was my second guess. Son of a Jack bitch. Briscoe. I knew it was either Funk or Briscoe. Dang it. Uh, you might get this one. The Hollywood Blondes, of course, Steve Austin and Brian Pillman, defeated which team for their only WCW World Tag Team title? Oh, um, see, oh God, it would have to be. Um, I've got to think of that. Do you know the date? March second, nineteen ninety three. Okay, one guy was an ECW. Oh, yeah, it's, it's Steamboat and uh, Douglas. There you go, Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas. Okay, uh, this is sort of a, this is a hard one. This was a, usually a uh, multiple choice, but okay. we'll see if you get this. How did Big Daddy Cool Diesel lose the WWF World Heavyweight title to Hitman Bret Hart at the 1995 Survivor Series? They're asking, what move did it? You know, so. Oh, because afterwards, Nash immediately got up and attacked Hart. Right. So. Um, oh, man, I remember this match. I got to replay it in my head. Um, I'm going to say, wasn't it a small package? Yes, it's the Strider, the small package roll-up. Yes, we call it the Strider. 
So okay. I, I knew because I, I remembered that match. So I, I very I was a huge fan of Diesel at that point. So you're not going to put over small package Strider. Come on. Nope. Um, who <laughs> held the Smoky Mount Wrestling Heavyweight Title the most times? This guy oh, this held it easy. three times from '92 to '95. Who is it? Well, I think there's two choices, but I'm going to go with my first thought, which is the Dirty White Boy Tony Anthony. That is correct. Who was your second thought? Uh, that would have been uh, Tracy Smothers. I would have guessed Tracy Smothers. Yeah, but it's yeah. uh, it's 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 uh, T.L. Hopper, Tony Anthony. Yep. So I, I, me and my brother talked about this the other day, really quick. He loved White Lightning, Tim Horner, and he okay. loved Dirty White Boy. And I can never wow. figure out either guy why he why he liked either guy. I can never figure. I, out. I love Cornette just burying Horner like he just makes him look like a complete idiot. Uh, but he, yeah, he, he, he booked hated. him a lot. He booked he, him. He did. He did. Okay. Uh, who was Tommy Dreamer's first ECW Tag Team Championship partner? Uh, he won the ECW Tag Titles with this person on November thirteenth, nineteen ninety three. Uh, he ended up losing it with Shane Douglas, who was was who was substituting for this injured man uh, on December fourth of that same year. Oh, was it Taz? Oh God. I'm going to say, see, 93, it must have been one of the baby pieces that are kind of bringing in and out when it was Eastern Championship Wrestling. I am actually going to say there's two guys floating around in my head. It was either Jimmy Snuka or Don Morocco. I'm going to say Don Morocco. It was actually Johnny Gunn. Oh, okay. Johnny Gunn. Johnny Gunn. Who's Johnny Gunn? I, I was trying to remember. I don't believe that was Sal Sincere, was it? I don't believe it was him. I don't remember no. who Johnny Gunn was. Huh. I didn't watch ECW in its infinite stages. I watched it like 97 on, you know. So I'm I I'm bad right now, Chris. I am batting 500. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Um, how many times did the WWF world heavyweight title change hands in the 1960s? So how many times in the did the WWF? Yes, the WWF World Heavyweight Championship, they're calling it on this quiz. But yes, WWF, how many times did this the heavyweight is, title change in the 60s? This is tough. Um, man, I'm going to say two times. One time. Oh, man. Okay, who was it? San Martino defeated Buddy yep. Rogers, and then San Martino held the title until 71 when he lost to wow. Koloff. Yep, it was okay. either two or one. So, I, I yeah. Okay. These are hard. These are hard. Okay. Many fans know that Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson defeated the Samoans to win the WWF World Tag Team titles, but who did they lose the belts to? Um, they had a five-month reign, and they lost to this team. And one of the team members was recently on uh, – he was recently the star of one of the Dark Side of the Ring episodes this season. Hmm. He died. <laughs> well. <Hence> dark Side. <laughs> Well, most no most, Terry TA T, T, Magnum TA lived. He, that's yeah. <laughs> well. I was gonna, no. I was gonna say most stars from the well. No, the '80s stars are still living. It's the '90s stars that died. Oh, '80s guys died a lot. Come on, Big Boss Man. Like there's a million. Big um. Guys. Okay. Uh, I'm going to say it was the team of. Oh man. I don't Adrian Adonis and somebody else. Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch. Ah, okay. Yeah. Random. 
Yeah, it is a random. Uh, let's see. This is NWA '80s question: Who won the NWA United States Heavyweight Titles? In who won the most NWA United States Heavyweight Titles in the 1980s? This mm, guy. This is good. This guy. This guy held it five times from okay. 1981 to 1984. Um, he's Ooh. no longer with us. Give me a second. He's, um, I can give you a hint. It'll probably give it away. But no, no, don't give me any hints. Uh, from 81 to 84, he held it five times. Yep. Uh, is it the American Dream, baby? Nope. Who is it? Uh, so Flair held it once, Magnum TA twice, Luger uh, three times, but Wahoo McDaniel five really? times. Yeah. I my first guess was Luger. That was like the first guess, but I was like, I don't know if he was working actively in '81. That That's was, what threw uh, me off the Luger scent. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, this is a Japanese question. I would not get this. Which Japanese wrestler teamed with Road Warrior Hawk to win the New Japan International Tag Team titles? Kintsuki Sasaki. Awesome. Good job. Do you remember who they defeated? They defeated the Steiner Brothers? Scott Norton and Tony Holm, who was known as Victor Borga. Oh, man. <laughs> and he was white power guy. Oh, yeah. He had that uh, yeah, the German tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that German tattoo. He sure did. All right. This this is tough. A couple USWA questions. Would you okay. know these at all? I, I don't I don't bring it. Uh, uh who were the first USWA tag team champions? Uh they won them in a uh, tournament on August eleventh, nineteen eighty nine. Okay, that's when he... world class championship wrestling officially became the USWA a week later. So these guys were technically the world class champions, and they lost them to these two guys. So it was Cactus Jack and Sheik Braddock <laughs> lost the tag titles from world class to these two guys who became the first ever USWA tag team champions. Okay, so that means um oh, I'm trying to remember my stable. Okay, so USWA, in my recollection, because I, I did watch USWA quite a bit, they didn't have, because you had the Moondogs, you had a couple guys that were left over from the territories or from Memphis. You didn't have a lot of guys. I'm going to say it was a babyface team, but it was a babyface team that was thrown together. So... So I'm gonna. Do you want a hint or no? Yeah, yeah. Give me okay. A hint. One one guy is is working in AEW now, and the other guy was the featured guest on Dark Side of the Ring this season. Yeah. So I knew the one, obviously, and that's why I said it was a thrown together babyface team. So I knew Jarrett. Uh huh. Um, and then his his uh God, who was his partner? His partner wasn't Atlas. Wasn't it wasn't Lawler. It was it was a dark side of the ring guy that owes me two hundred dollars. <laughs> was it Matt Bourne? It was Matt Bourne. Wow. Okay. All right. Matt Bourne and Jeff Jarrett. That tag. I knew it was, was Bourne I, and Jarrett. I knew it was Jarrett and somebody else. But yeah, Matt. The Matt Bourne thing would have stumped me for sure. Uh, okay. I, this is I, this is impossible. Which WWF wrestler swapped the USWA Southern title with Jeff Jarrett in 1993? But this guy wasn't a WWF wrestler at the time. He just ended being one in the in the Attitude Era. Mm. But he did have his uh, 
Uh, well, I can't. I can't say that yeah. because he, he's going. So to he swapped the title. So it was a WWF. He, he swapped w- a Southern title with Jeff Jarrett in 1993. It's a very random question. Yeah. Um. I'm and he wasn't and he wasn't a star until the Attitude Era. Yes, he he was the head of a faction. Okay. In 1997, 98, that was popular for a couple years. Okay. It you wasn't like uh, the Southern title. It was so it wasn't. Um, it wasn't because of my first thing was like the whole NWA overlap gimmick with Severn and all that kind of stuff, but that wasn't it. Um, he and then my into se- the Vashon family. And then my second, uh, Vampire Warrior. Yes. Really. Yes, Vampire okay, I barely Warrior. got that one, but I'll count it. Well, that's that's tough. Like, random. Um, that is random. That's vampire warrior. But hey, props to me for calling him by the name he got the title from. He was not Gangrel at the time. He was Vampire Warrior. Yep. Uh, held on June tenth, nineteen eighty three, the Harley Race versus Ric Flair match in Missouri was what type of match? Cage match. Well, Race won his seventh World Heavyweight Title in this match. Special referee Gene Kaninsky counted a pin of flare, a flare submission, and then a uh, second shoulder raise uh, by race. So anyway, it was best two out of three falls match. It wasn't a cage match? No. Wow. Best two Why did I re- recollect it being a cage match? That's so weird. Okay. Well, this, 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 these questions could be wrong, but I'm going to go with the right okay. for this segment. And finally, who was the last AWA World Heavyweight Champion? Figured you might know this one. Oh, um, it wasn't gone. Uh, Zabisco. Zabisco is correct. Nice. So, so, what was your final tally there? Final tally: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I got eight questions right, and I got seven questions wrong. Hey, that's over five hundred on these. Is pretty good. Not like, bad. These are hard. These are hard. That, like I said, they these are uh, this is sort of hodgepodge. Maybe we can go more of a. Uh, a uh, more centralized sort of pin. No, that was fun. Topic I, in the future. Where, now, was there any question in there that you were like, "Man, how did he know that?" Um, I mean, I wasn't a WCW guy, so I wouldn't have remembered uh, the tag team of uh, that beat the the Hollywood Blondes. I wouldn't have okay. gotten that. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't really claim to know WCW history, so. Um, yeah, I no, I mean uh, Vampire Warrior, the fact that you knew his name, that was a good one. Um Kintsuki Sasaki, that one. Oh no, yeah, you. well that that was one I definitely wouldn't have gotten because I'm also not a Japanese wrestling guy. So But I remember that super show. That's what got me into uh Japanese wrestling was that WCW uh New Japan Super Show. I was obsessed with Jushin Thunder Lager and uh Brian Pillman's match on that. I think it was Pillman. Yeah, Anyways. yeah was, they would put him on the map. Yeah. Yeah. I was I'm just freaking obsessed with Jushin Thunder Liger. So, yeah. Nice. All right. Well, that uh, that about wraps it up for this week on the worst territory in the world. Chris, we got a bunch of fun stuff coming at you in the weeks to come. More wrestle talk, hopefully, some more interviews, more everything, and especially talking about the worst territory in the world, Chris. Uh, you can be, uh, I encourage all wrestling fans to go out and visit you. 
at the peculiar winery. Sure, I can I can see some wrestling fans there. That's fine. We we welcome all walks of life there. That, so if you're a wrestling fan, come on out. Debbie Schmidling and the like. You can I've seen Debbie out there. So there's there's people that have come by to say hi. Absolutely. Dan Geyer, Dan Geyer De, the all all the good people. You can go see uh Goff at his wonderful winery, the Peculiar Winery. If you need any real estate needs taken care of, I'm your guy. My name, my name in real estate has been Miller. So you can look me up at my website at binmiller.realestate or binmillerrealtykc on all your social media platforms, um, helping people contest those Jackson County tax assessments and everything in between buying, selling, investing. I'm your guy. Give me a call. Area code 661236. 9055 Chris a lot of fun this week we will see everybody next week right here where we will choose the best time of the week to talk about possibly the worst territory in the world that's Chris I'm Gabe we'll see you next time bye bye everybody it's the worst day.